I can only hope we are able to all pull together over the next few days until the rest of you arrive for Lieutenant Grimley. It's here. You got Clemens. Stop this, Raviant One. I'm Stop telling it. you. It's here. Stop here and get that foolish woman back to the infirmary. <laughs> Welcome to And Why Not, the movie podcast and the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine and I love movies, which is lucky because each episode I'm joined by a guest to talk about a movie they love and see where the conversation takes us from there. Whether you're a regular listener or just dropping by for this episode, welcome to the show and thank you for giving us a listen. Whether you're a regular listener or just dropping by for this episode, welcome to the show and thank you for giving us a listen. I hope you enjoyed the film talk and, as always, and if you feel like doing so, you can keep the conversation going in the comments on our socials, in the And Why Not Facebook group, or wherever you see this episode posted. For this episode, I'm joined by Ross Beamish as we continue Spooktober with a conversation about 1992's David Fincher big screen directorial debut, Alien 3. Just a quick heads up, this was quite a long conversation, so I haven't included any clips from the film beyond the trailer and the ending clip. And now, with all that introduction stuff out of the way, let's roll the trailer. Here, in a world where the sun burns gold, And the wind blows colder. A visitor has come. But not by herself. It started. Come on! The suspense is back. And we have no weapons of any kind? The fear is back. And most of all, the bitch is back. (laughs) Alien 3. Hello, Ross. How are you? Hey, Stu. I am doing great with the exception of one thing, which is, like I told you a couple of days ago when you invited me for this time slot, uh, my MacBook Pro uh, hard drive blew up on me. Uh, So I'm speaking to you now through an even more ancient iMac, and I hope you can see and hear me okay as a result. Yes. Yeah, I can. But uh, in any case, I've got my trusty gin and tonic and I've got my trusty glass of water. So I probably will need to relieve myself about halfway through this. But uh, We, we are right. men of a certain age. So. <laughs> of a certain incline, inclination of liking a gin and tonic, but also needing to pay the piper on the result of liking that gin and tonic. So, yeah. Yeah. If I drink um, anything after 7pm, that's it. But... <laughs> and but how are you then? I'm I'm all right. I'm ticking on, thank you. So, yeah, really happy to be talking about this film. Yeah, um, man. The, the film that promised. Coming. The film that promised on Earth, everyone will hear you scream. And that's just and about then, this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's the strapline for this podcast. Yeah. But 
All right, and so yeah, we're talking about Alien Three. So a little bit of information about the film. So directed by David Fincher. This is our second dip into the world of David Fincher. Uh, written by David Geiler, Walter Hill, and Larry Ferguson, based on a story by Vincent Ward and based on characters created by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. Starring on the poster, Sigourney Weaver, Charles Esther, and Charles Dance and Matt Henriksen, with, I've cherry-picked some names that have gone on to bigger things, uh, or were bigger, Brian Glover, Paul McGann, Ralph Brown, Danny Webb, Hulk McElhaney, Christopher Fairbank, Pete Pothelswaite, Clive Mantle, for all you casualty fans out there, and Phil Davis. Released in cinemas on the 19th of May, 1992, and in the UK on the 21st of August, 1992, grossed $159,814,498 worldwide on an estimated budget of $50 million, according to IMDb. There's no written review from Roger Ebert, but on his TV show, both he and Siskel gave the film thumbs down, with uh, Roger Ebert saying... The third and least exciting, but in some ways the most interesting movie about the plague of spider-like monsters from outer space. There are interesting elements here, especially the art direction, which creates the prison world in shades of rust and mould and despair. It's a great movie to look at, but the chase scenes at the end are drawn out and repetitious. But this is probably the best looking bad movie I've seen in a while. And again, there's no Barry Norman review that I could find. Come on BBC, start putting those up on the YouTube and archiving them. Uh, But in his review for Empire magazine, Kim Newman gave the film two stars out of five, saying... This genuinely eagerly awaited retread unfortunately puts its foot wrong as soon as the credits start rolling, as some awkward exposition brings Ripley and a handy alien egg to a prison planet populated by religious fanatics who think they're in porridge, killing off all the other leftover characters from aliens in a computer readout aside. Meanwhile, the shaven head theme allows Weaver to look striking and do a Joan of Arc impression, but also serves to render the rest of the cast in contrast with the well-fleshed-out monster food of the earlier films totally anonymous so that by the time the death-filled finale arrives, it's impossible to tell who is still alive and who has been just been killed. So it wasn't very well received at the time. No, it wasn't at all. Which is no secret, really. Um, I remember it coming out. I remember Brian Glover being on TVAM, it must have been then, and talking about the film. And they showed the scene where he dies. It's like, yeah, wow. <laughs> Spoilers, yeah. but as that seemed to be in all the trailers anyway, when I've gone back and looked at it. Um, but yeah, so what are your memories of first seeing it? Were you familiar with the Alien films before, or was this sort of your gateway? Was it after the fact? Uh, just before I begin, I should tell your listeners to settle in, because I've been looking forward to talking about this film for many a month, if not year, and I've got 14 pages of A4 notes on this, this sucker. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, i got a lot to say. All it's right, a film so... we've talked about a lot in the past, isn't it? Yeah, we kind of did, like, teaser of teaser allusion to the fact that maybe we should talk about this, and that's why I'm really pleased that you've invited me as part of your uh, October Halloween uh, series to um, to talk about it. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, so um originally saw this in about 94. I think it was about the summer of 94, so we were over at my friend's house and um, he was very lucky to have a swimming pool in his garden. He was out in the countryside and we were very lucky to be invited to go and swim in it. And uh, after we'd had a big summer swim, one of our pals produced this this videotape. And I can't remember whether it was pirated or not, but the phrase who wants to watch Alien 3 came out. And by that point, I had pretty certain that I had seen uh, Aliens by that point. In fact, I'm I'm convinced I had. And I'm 
yeah, I'm going to say I'm certain I'd watched Alien as well because I remember distinctly it being screened on um, uh, the TV broadcast a few years before. So I might have only seen Alien once, and I'd seen Aliens probably a couple of times by then. Uh, but I remember distinctly being both intrigued and upset by it at the same time on first viewing. What was your initial impression when you saw it? So to put it in context, I'd seen Aliens, and then I watched Alien, which I liked Alien, but I've always preferred Aliens even then. I think as like a teen, Aliens is the more exciting film because it's all gung-ho and that. I have a slight more preference towards Aliens than Alien, even though I think Alien is arguably the better film. And I was so excited for this coming out. We A kid at school was getting the Alien magazine that had the comic adaptation in it. Yeah. In installments. So, but it was, he was like passing it around and then taking it back quick. So I didn't know that, you know, the fate of Hicks and Newton and that. So I thought Hicks was just drawn really weird in the comic for a long time. It turned out it was Clemens. Um, <laughs> and then when it came out on video, me and my brother went up to the video shop to rent it out, but they wouldn't let us have it because it was an 18. So we went home grumbling about it. So my mum wrote a note and sent us back up and they still wouldn't let us have it. And then we had a note from my mum, so we had to go back. And then my mum had to drive up and rent it out. And we watched that night. And I have mixed feelings on this film. I genuinely love the film as a standalone movie, as a sequel to Aliens. I hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, said before, as much as possible, talk about it as a film in isolation, but it's but difficult it, when it's the third part of a, well, at the time, a trilogy. trilogy. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's as a sequel to Aliens, it throws away everything I'd invested in that film in a really casual throwaway manner. I think they could have done something different, I think. Well, as, as I've written here, I was, since I'd seen those two uh, previous installments, I was pretty familiar with what to expect, or so I thought. Um, now, we've got a slightly different interpretation on on how we feel about that and i'll talk more about that in my post-screening notes um but i will say that my my initial impression was that i didn't really like it um and it it, partly because as you said we were teenage boys right and it didn't have the the gung-ho charm um to a young teen boy of aliens uh, and it, it just felt a bit off at the time. And I didn't really understand why. But obviously, with the production background and everything that went along with that and Finch's first film and everything, it's quite quite easy to see why it feels a bit off. Yeah. Like human human beings have a radar for things that aren't just quite quite right. It's a bit like Neo in The Matrix, isn't it? Yeah. Just realising something's not quite right here. There's always been an itch that you can't quite itch. Um but of course, we, this is in relation to the theatrical cut, and that's the one that we're talking about today, isn't yeah. it? So there was still something in it. I, I, there was always something that brought me back to it, and I've been back to this film so many times in my life, uh, most recently last night, uh, just to refresh on it. I mean, for one thing, it was the, the early 90s, of course, so CGI was in its infancy, but it was just creeping into big movie releases, particularly action films. And we all watched it looking out for the CG shots, which there's actually very few in the film, aren't there? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of Matt in the puppet in, after which I'd say that's weaker than the few elements of CGI that there is, but I get the feeling that, well, it's no secret this film was rushed. Yeah, I actually love it. I love the puppet 
Oh, I love the puppet world. I just, it needed, it's possibly something they could have fixed at a later date for the home video release or DVD down the line. It just needs blending slightly better. It really does stick out like a rock that's going to break in a Tom and in a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. Yeah. And then um, just to kind of like solidify Alien 3, even more so in my childhood memories, I got the video game uh, for the Amiga, uh, like a couple of years later, I think it came out. And um, it it was equally terrifying uh, as the film, actually. Um, I thought that it looks so cool. And I've actually, I was just playing some Alien 3 games on an emulator before this um, this meeting began. Uh, I was playing it on the, the Mega Drive, which was basically the Amiga version. And then the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo and even the Game Gear had like a version. Um, and uh, they're all a bit different, actually. It's quite interesting. But it all just tied into that early 90s nostalgic feeling for yeah. me playing these on these old 16-bit and 8-bit video games. Yeah, um, I remember going to a friend's house. I can't remember what console playing it on, but she had it for that console. It might have actually been on the her PC. But I remember playing it. And, you know, I'm terrible at computer games anyway, but it's a hard game, but it yeah, looks yeah. amazing. And uh, and in any case, um, I just I kept somehow just being drawn back to this film, like over and over, not necessarily looking for it, but things kept popping up like a new game would come up or I don't know, like a videotape would be cheap to buy or I don't know what it was. I just end up keep watching it, watching it. And then, of course, the quadrilogy came out and that was a great great opportunity to revisit the film properly that quad that quadrilogy box set is like one of the finest home releases of any series of films yeah the package was just brilliant and it wasn't exactly expensive for for the time i think it was like always even when it was first released it was quite fairly priced and then it yeah, seems- I think there was a bare bones initial release wasn't there and then in 2003 they did that like special edition one with two cuts of each film yeah those really good in-depth documentaries, like say the Alien 3 making of documentary is so good because there's so many people getting screwed over and it's so brutally honest. I'm amazed Fox let it go out. Yeah. They do not come out of it very well. I know it was probably a different Fox regime then, but even then, company's company, isn't it? Well, I, I was going to save some trivia for later, as we normally do, but just to slide something in here, as you said, uh, I can't remember which Fox executive it was, but they basically gave, uh, it was kind of like extending the olive branch is the phrase that I'd, I'd read um to fincher by giving complete creative control of the quadrilogy box set to this producer who was basically aligned with fincher um so they just went right go on take it away yeah because i know they asked fincher to come back and oversee the assembly cut didn't they but he was like even with the material that's there it would never be my close enough to my version no so literally he literally do what you like with it i yeah don't want to be involved at all. He, li- he literally said, "Just the only way I could ever see my version is to burn it and start it again." Yeah. <laughs> um, and there is uh, just incidentally, there's there is um, that brilliant scene in Fight Club. Do you you know the one I'm talking about yeah. with Project Mayhem, where they've got they go to the they're causing mayhem across the course across the city, and they go to the video store. And there's the big rack of Alien Threes, and they they've got the plug-in magnet that they yeah, just wipe running across. magnets over and wiping yeah. the tapes. Which is just again, and that's a Fox film as well. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I mean that that I mean, there's so much to discuss about Fight Club. But I just I, I always chuckle when I see that, knowing that Finch is finally getting his revenge. 
It's it's a weird thing with Alien Three because all the things I've read was that Fox were banking on that because they needed a big hit. Yeah, it's like none of the neither Alien film before were massive money makers, so it seemed like such a weird thing to be putting all your eggs in the basket of. Well, it's not dissimilar, I guess, to when Disney bought Star Wars, was it? It was a it was a very recognizable IP by that time, and of course, we've talked about this before. How odd it was that in the nineties we had these R rated films that were marketed to kids in yeah. terms of toy lines as well. So, of course, there's a lot of um, like revenue from um, from toys and and T shirts and and posters that kids can have on their or comic book lines and things. Yeah, because so, I think this is where. For me, Alien 3 made its mistake in killing off Newton Hicks. I think they should have found a way to get Ripley ejected, keep those alive and just floating out in space, and then you've got a potential spin-off, especially knowing that you're going to kill Ripley off at the end of this film anyway. Potentially killing your franchise. Obviously, we know that Resurrection happened, and that's a different conversation for a different time, and we'll probably come into it a bit more at the end with your post-screening notes. But I just think like I say, it felt, and I think a lot of people felt at the time, and it's possibly why the film wasn't very well received at the time, is because it starts with killing off two characters that you've invested in and come to love. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a feeling about that, but I'll save that for a bit later. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. This is just sort of my feeling. I kind of feel like if, say the facehugger was on Ripley, the ship detected it and just ejected her into the yeah. escape thing or something, th- there's a way you could have done it without having to kill those characters off. There is. I think that's the benefit of hindsight. But yeah, essentially, I'll, I'll cut to the chase now. I think that actually, in with how beige films are these days in terms of the writing and how nobody takes any risks and nobody takes any chances, if they had done that these days, they would probably be lauded as being actually really brave with the writing in much the same way that the, they were with Game of Thrones, where yeah. they were just, nobody was safe, nobody had plot armour. Um, I can understand back then, especially as people like yourself were so attached to those characters, um, particularly Hicks. I'm not so, I'm not so bothered by Nuke personally, um, but uh, Hicks being um, the kind of, the character, especially a military guy, um, how he didn't actually get to go out in a blaze of glory in any sense. It's a bit of a sting, but actually, I didn't. It's a bold move to to do that with with two of the three remaining characters from the last film. Yeah, I remember reading a thing. It must have been when Alien Resurrection was coming out, and they were talking about it and about Sigourney Weaver, James Cameron, and David Fincher going out for dinner or something. David Fincher saying then that they're killing Newton Hicks. Yeah. Initially, James Cameron was a bit like, what? Why? Yeah. But then he sort of understood that you don't necessarily want to be saddled with those characters. Yeah. So I get that. I just think, and I get that it adds sort of another emotional layer to Ripley, although I think she kind of washes that away quite quickly for me. But I, I you know, I get the reason for doing it. I just think it could have been done a different way. And I get you've got the new problem in that, what, eight years, six years had passed since Aliens? Like in in our time, so you'd have to either recast Newt or kill her off. Yeah, I mean, obviously in the film, it's two weeks since Aliens, isn't it? So that's going to yeah, make it, it very difficult for your twelve year old girl to suddenly be eighteen. But I, I know I'm actually going to save this to the end. 
because uh, yep. I'm kind of itching to say something about my comparison of this series, this series of films to um, maybe other prominent series that you, they're kind of analogies to. Yep. Um, but I'm going to save it to the end because okay. uh, I'm going to show my I'm going to show some of my cards as we go through, but the rest I'm going to keep close to my chest. Yeah, no, that's cool. But oh, I am right. wearing I am wearing mirrored glasses whilst yeah. playing cards, so it's not exactly secret as I go through. It's just I want to say something, you know, at the end, not show everything in one go. Yeah. All right. So should be our first date. <laughs> <laughs> should we dive into the film itself then? So obviously you open with the Fox fanfare that fades into the ominous music. Yeah, I tell you what, man, um, I'd forgotten until the first millisecond of watching it, just how epic that is. So um, seeing that 20th Century Fox um, legacy ident is just something special. Yeah. Uh, I love it. And um, such a throwback to those those times. Um, and, of course, it, it links Alien to Star Wars for people of a certain age, yeah. doesn't it, with the, the whole intro? It's, it's ITV Saturday nights for me. It's... The Alien films, when they used to show those on a Saturday night, the Predator film, or Predator, when they used to show that a lot on a Saturday night. Like you say, Star Wars, Cocoon, yeah. just all these classic Fox movies. Yeah, and of course there are there are comparisons between Alien and Star Wars in yeah. terms of their, their, their prominence as sci-fi movies from the 70s and the 80s. And the well, 90s. It, in many ways, Alien franchise only exists because of Star Wars and they were hungry for more sci-fi movies. Yeah. And it's one of the few series that actually managed to capitalize that and has actually transcended um multiple decades and multiple generations. Yeah. Uh, for better or for worse. Multiple spin-offs as well. Probably the best the least we say about those the better. Yeah. Um but also that that hanging ominous note when it hasn't quite finished the end of the and then it just hangs on it. And like it almost, it's almost like drips away. Yeah, um, it's terrifying. It's I, I was like, oh man, I forgot how good this was. And then it cuts to this this blackness of space, peppered with stars. And then there's this strange yellowy hue at the top of the screen, which actually does come back, I think, later at the very end of the film with those flamey jets and everything yeah. there at the bottom of the frame. Um, and that yellowy hue is like a sickly yellow it's not like a nice golden hue it's it's almost like uh toxic or or radioactive um and then it slowly tilts downwards um as elliot goldenthal's score uh just ominously uh introduces the title and it's scary and the way that those the the alien three appears on the screen just is is i think beautiful um graphic design if anything else and then I, I i'm sorry i've got like half a page of notes on this bit because it's literally one of my most famous favorite pieces of editing an intro to any film um possibly only uh only bettered in my mind to the opening of apocalypse now actually and when we were at film school i remember taking this exact dvd that i watched last night into my my filmmaking colleagues who were on my team and went guys we've got to watch this because this is how we edit an intro so uh just before i get go into that is there anything you wanted to say about no the... no no okay cool because i i'm, I'm going to go off on one here sorry guys <laughs> um i just love it i love it go and watch it now and then come back to this and listen to more of this of what we're saying but um the uh the intro intercuts with the the space background 
Uh, and then first we get um, Ripley in the cryo sleep, then an external shot of the Sulaco, then a brilliant track to reveal the still oozing overmorph egg that's obviously opened with nothing in it. It, it. it tracks across and you can see the horrible, disgusting dripping out, which is so synonymous with the alien's drooling mouth. It's just terrifying. Then the fingers of the facehugger extend really like it's about a second and a half. And this is what I'm talking about, economical editing. Um, split seconds um they we approach newt asleep the cryo tube cracks again it's like i don't know a fifth of a second or something it's yeah and then it's done um as the choir sings like that that haunting choir choir sound the acid hits the floor there's sparks there's smoke and the detector the computer display of life signs with the computer voice status interrupted red alarm uh, display with the face hugger on someone's face so we know something's happened here we don't know which which character but and so it's setting us up with this expectation as a callback um uh it's barely audible and then it goes suddenly clear emergency escape then we got the close-up of the the blood seeping through the white sheet which is and also this kind of like alien screech that goes with it so I know that neither Hicks nor Newt were supposed to have been impregnated with the alien, right? Originally, it was supposed to be Hicks, but then Michael Bean got wind of it because I think his agent or producer on something else he was working on had visited Pinewood and seen a cast of his body with his chest ripped open. Yeah. So Michael Bean had said, there's no fucking way you're having one of those things bursting out of me. So that's why they changed it. And he wouldn't sign off his likeness for the dummy. So that's why they changed it. So a beam fell down on him. Yeah. So, and then in the comic, it's Newt, and when she dies, the alien queen crawls out of her mouth and then goes down Ripley's throat instead. Oh, right, so kind of like as a secondary host. Yeah. Got you. That makes more sense, because it does It does imply that it's one of the female characters, because it's like a white cloth, and the scream of the, the screech of the alien creature, it, it, it does imply that it's burst out. But it kind of looks like Hicks's bandages and blood coming through them. Yes. Yeah, Hicks is bandaged up at the end of Aliens, isn't he? Because he's had the acid burn. This is true. But this ambiguity is is good. I mean, we're talking about this and trying to pull it apart. And it's not just, are oh, we just letting it happen to us? We're actively engaging with this film straight away. And that's yeah. partly why I love this sequence. Um, the, the, the red lights, the close-up on the face... Um, rapid cuts, explosion, fire, the pod ejects, or at least gets loaded to be ejected. Um, the editing slows a bit, the escape pod leads the ship, and the camera tracks it to fall into a planet, which, my God, what a shot. We talked yeah. in the um, uh, the last film we did, the Independence Day, about when the, the individual ships detach from the mothership yeah. and how great that looks. And this is, to me, just as good, where it just... It's it, yeah, it's a very similar up. shot, isn't it? It's the model work in this is superb. Oh, that, again, that was all model work. It was no CGI for that stuff. Yeah, all model and then, work and map paintings. And then we've got Welcome to Fury One Six One. As the I was trying to figure out how as a map painting because the planet is is rotating as the pod like falls towards it. Um, but I, however they did it, I just think it looks great. Yeah um and the escape pod crashes into the sea it's cold it's dark it's metallic it's desolate um what an opening and i put a little heart next to my notes here of how much i love that i just ah it's so well edited um 
Actually, I think it's a great opening to an alien film. I, yeah, I think it might be one of the strongest openings to an alien film. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, there's not much to compare it with with the first two. As great as those films are, they got fairly bland openings. The first one is the empty ship switching on, isn't it? Well, not the yeah. empty ship, but you know the unmanned ship switching on. It's still good the second one, Yeah. Oh no, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think this one's really, like I say, as much as I hate what they did, and as much as it does raise the question of where did that egg come from? Yeah. When did the queen pick up an egg? Because it couldn't. I mean, this is something that's been debated. The queen couldn't have brought it with her. That dropship wouldn't have been down long enough for an egg to be on it. I guess you know it's just. One of the nicest theories I've heard, and partly because we all, we can't help but love Bishop, right, is that he's got this kind of background code that's running that even he doesn't know is there. And when he went to get the dropship or whatever, he had this code and he loaded the egg in. And he didn't even know it. Yeah, interesting. Um, which turned, which is great because there's, there's a, part of the ambiguity of this film is um, we've got... Um, characters who should be villains or antagonists some of them continue to be but others turn out to be well our nearest equivalent to protagonists and then of course in that regard we'd have someone who would have been presented as a potential threat at the start of the film of aliens and then becomes uh, a protector um and an information giver giver <laughs> information giver um at the in this film and as actually could actually be one of the primary antagonists of the film without him or us even knowing yeah no that's an interesting i mean i've always put it down to the austin powers basil exposition of i suggest you don't think too much about it and then turn into the crowd and be like i suggest you don't think about it too much either. <laughs> yeah. um i mean i don't buy that ripley wouldn't have done a computer sweep of the ship or something but again it's a company ship so there's yeah. There's ways around it, like I say, you can pick it apart. Um, for the purposes of this as a film on its own, yeah, really interesting idea. Um, really great opening. I mean, if obviously Fincher had come from music videos, obviously done Vogue, George yeah. Michael's Freedom 90 video, all those ones, it feels a little bit like cuts from a music video. I don't There's mean the... that in a throwaway kind of thing. You know, it just feels like a music video. I don't mean it like that. Cause... No, I've I've written the same note on a scene later where I was like, this is definitely where he was drawing from his music video uh, yeah. influence because it's just edited just like that. And it's not a disparaging comment. It's just, you know, well, put it this way. He was an established music video director by that yeah. point in time, and I'm not. So who yeah. am I to, to go, oh, he's just a music... And he's, you know, he's just made a film that I love. Um, so there's generally two kinds of music videos. There's a guy wandering around a garden centre or somewhere in the desert, blandness, and then there's the really arty, interesting ones. Like I say, Finch has done some great ones. That Vogue video and that George Michael Freedom video yeah. are superb. Getting all you those just, models to lip sync to George Michael Yeah, be interested put, with it as well. You've just put the image in my head of David Fincher directing a music video in a garden centre. <laughs> Like the bleakest garden centre ever, and just Cliff Richard wandering around it. <laughs> yeah, like he's the, he's actually the killer from Seven. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. That's um, in the box, Cliff. But yeah, it's great at setting it up. Obviously, you don't know at that point 
who's been impregnated. I think there's an element of misdirection with that. I think there's possibly an element of too many cooks in the kitchen. I mean, this oh, film yeah. is a wonderful mess of a movie yeah. where one guy had one idea, a corporation behind it had this idea, the producers had this idea, and they just kind of threw it together. And it, it is a mess of a movie. There's so many plot holes and conveniences in this film, but I love it for that wonderful mess that it is. And I think it's a really, like Roger Ebert said, it's a really interesting looking movie. Yeah. Like you say, we're just talking about the first opening minute or so. Yeah. And you wrote a whole pretty much half, three quarter page of notes well, just made, on that one scene. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but it made a really profound impression on me yeah. when I was like, right, I want to go and study film and spend a ton of my life, well, all of my life savings studying film uh, on a master's degree. And I sat there and just spent the summer before I'd started formally studying, just consuming as much film as possible. And it made such a, a, a fundamental impression on me that it's lived with me ever since. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm very grateful that you uh, invited me to talk about it today. Um, yeah, well, like I say, even before years ago, when we were, you know, making short films and all that stuff together, this is a film that came up a lot. And yeah, I think was, I think yeah. this possibly is also for me one of those films where I stopped watching films just as a film, yeah, and actually thinking about the techniques of how they did it and all that. I remember like you and I going to watch the Thirty Nine Steps at the cinema, yeah. yeah, talking about that scene where it goes from inside the car outside the car, and you don't see the cut, but it does actually go to black very briefly, where it looks like it passes out the door. And just those little cinema techniques. And this film has got some really interesting stuff. Like you say, the puppetry. I say as much as they don't blend together, I didn't notice it then because, you know, we grew up on Ray Harryhausen films and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. And again, as hokey as they are, wonderful charm to them. Well, you you self-trained yourself, essentially. So um, you went from a film watcher to a film reader. Uh, yeah. Because of your love of film, and and this, my film study students, if anyone's listening to this, they'll be rolling their eyes right through the back of their head and back again. Because I always tell them at the start of the course that they no longer watch film; they read film, and every it's our mantra. And I also tell them I'm going to ruin film for them, and they go like, "What? I've just ch- chosen this subject because it sounds really cool, and you're telling me I'm going to ruin it." And I'm like, "I'm only ruining it in the sense that you're going to go and watch it as a dummy." You're now going to go and analyze this film, and um, as you said, this was a this was all the way back. Was um, used to do like our comedy nights and stuff like that. We always got, used to just chat about movies such as this one, especially. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it did have a profound effect. I love this sequence actually more in the in the theatrical cut than the way it's put together in the assembly cut. I actually think the shots are stronger. Um, it's one of the sections that I, I think actually they got it right the first time round. Um, but as we know, with these men arriving, it's a double Y chromosome facility. Uh, we know that from the text that appears on the screen before. And my God, do they look the part? It's it it does not feel safe. Um, they're all bold. They're all white. They're all dirty. They're jumpy. They're British. They're like proper skinheads. And there's that great jump scare. Uh, when the O2 mask drops down next to him, yeah. uh, the character, and I say the character because that kind of ties into something I was going to say later about some of the um, 
a criticism of the film is that uh, partly because of you said it was a bit of a hot mess, um, particularly with the Golic character, but um, which no doubt we'll talk about it a bit. Yeah. But um, the I, I've heard criticisms of um, Covenant saying that you just don't know who the characters are, and the same of Prometheus, you just don't really know who they are, so you don't really care. And I think it's difficult to know all of the characters in this film very well. It's only a handful that we even get. I, I think it's the ones you recognise from either going on to do other things or that were in things before that you sort of like from... It's like Clive Mantle just disappears. I mean, Golic, uh, Paul McGann just disappears from the film as well. But Clive Mantle, who, you know, a certain generation of us watched in casualty in the 90s, um, he just disappears. I think he has a... There's an insert of him screaming somewhere, so you know he died. But I mean, gonna, it's what yeah. Kim Newman said is that by the end, it's impossible to tell who's still alive and who's dead. Yeah, it is, and that's where it gets really messy and choppy in this in this theatrical version, uh, at least. Um, and of course, the, the, after the the main body of this, we'll talk about the the pros and cons of the two different versions. Yeah. But um, for this one, at least, um, the dog is introduced. Yeah. Um, so dog or ox? What do you well, think? My my preference. Yeah. Well, I mean. I'd rather see it come out of a dead animal than watch a dog suffer. Yeah, the, the ox does lead to the problem of the guy shouting "Spike" down the hole where he thinks it's the dog, but we've never met the dog. So, yeah, I mean, you can kind of yeah, he is yeah. one of those that you can kind of let go. I mean, that's a good point about seeing the, the suffering of the dog. Um, but this is a this isn't a film that's supposed to pull any punches, is it? It's an no. alien. Film. Oh, it's an incredibly well done. You you uh, feel that dog dying. I mean, yeah. I love dogs anyway. We talked about it. When we did the thing episode um, a couple of episodes ago, um, yeah, I love dogs anyway. So seeing dogs suffer in any way in any film, but or any wrote, animal to be fair, but that was I always wrote, the rule, wasn't it? You can kill as many like you know adults and kids as you like, but you leave the dog alone. Well, that's why, why actually I think it's more effective because I've written a note here. I think it actually hits home more. Yeah, uh, you've got this planet full of these these murderers and rapists and worse. Um, if you could have any worse, or well, you find them on this planet. And then you've got a dog, which actually is looks like a loyal companion. I mean, old man's best friend. And it's the first victim on this planet is this dog that's that's really perfectly innocent. That's it, an innocent dog. Um, and um, it's really economical on the shots um, where we've got the, the corpse hand just appears up. And then um, we've got... We've got this funny graphic of Ripley appears. Um, one of them is still alive. And then the graphic of Ripley appears. And I, I wrote, it looks like a PS1 dialogue scene from Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> um, but the game came out seven years, uh, sorry, the film came out seven years before Metal Gear Solid 1. And I just wondered if maybe they'd taken inspiration on it because it just looked exactly like it. Yeah. Um, the... Um, the It looks nothing like it. It looks nothing like her. It's the worst out of the three, and the the other. There's only. Um... I think the Hicks one. I think from what Michael Bean said is he got paid more for him to use that picture of yeah. him than he did for the entire shooting of Aliens. Yeah, I've heard that before, and um, uh, yeah, the thing that really sticks with me in that is Newt's drowned screaming face. Yeah, I've written a, a special note of that one too. It's really grim. Yeah, it's. It's really haunting. It really stays with you. I mean, it doesn't look like Carrie Hen. 
Yeah, I think they tried their best, but it doesn't look like Harry Hen because obviously now people have taken screen grabs of that and you can see it for as long as you want. And, but it is a really haunting well, flash of an a, image. She's in a frozen screen as well. Yeah. Um, and it's a child uh, and it's horrible. So, Which um, I'm assuming is not so much from her draining, but from the alien queen forcing her way out of her mouth. Which I would, yes, I, might, I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. And, um, I think it adds to the tragedy of um, Ripley's life. The fact yeah. that um, she tried, she's tried, you know, she lost her daughter. Uh, she was just a company woman doing her business. Then she got thrown into this, this universe where she's the heroine and she's got no other choice. Firstly, it's for survival. And then it's to try and save, save the human race and these colonists. Then she becomes a, a surrogate mother again. And while she's just sleeping, this tragedy unfolds again. It's like she cannot escape it. It's very, very nihilistic in that sense. There's well, just she was sleeping, she lost her daughter. <laughs> yeah, precisely. The echoes follow through. Yeah. Um, George Lucas stuff. Um, but the it, thing it that is... struck... Sorry. No, you, please, you go. I was just going to say, the thing that struck me with rewatching this, I mean, it's something I've always been aware of. It's just how... It's weird in this age of any strong female character lead is now called, you know, um, a Mary Sue. Yeah. Plot convenience that can do anything kind of thing. It's essentially what Ripley is. She's you and me. She's an every man or an every woman kind of thing when we first meet her. But she learns to do all these different things. And if this film came out now, I wonder if it would get that sort of... But I think you've Ray just Skywalker asked, kind of backlash. I think you've just answered your own question there. It's because you said she's learned how to do these things, and she was she did have scenes of vulnerability. For example, yeah. we're not we're talking about this film and not others, but I'm just thinking of vulnerable scenes from the past. In Alien, she definitely seems vulnerable. Um, in Aliens, there's the scene with the um, where what's his name, um, the company man, Paul's the book, yeah. You know, traps her and Newt with the um, face hugger in the room, and she, yeah. it, you know, it's very close. And actually, she doesn't save herself, does she? She gets saved then. Yeah. Um, and of course, at the end of this film, I'm sure you've done your spoiler alert and all this. Um, but the 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 only way that she can actually defeat it is to sacrifice herself. Yeah. It's not like she suddenly pulls out some Deus Ex Machina and then just kicks its butt um she which arguably she did at the end of the last one yeah um you know she she has to sacrifice herself um like but, i say uh, it's just an interesting thing i've watched a few films recently i've rewatched like the river wild recently as well which is meryl streep yeah. as a strong female lead and i don't think it's so much that they learn i think there's this weird male fragile ego at the moment of any yeah. woman doing something that the man in the film should do People instantly are kind of like, well, she's just a Mary Sue. It's that, I think there it's are... a dismissal thing rather than a thing. I, there are films that have that issue. You could argue that Ray in um, Force Awakens and those Star Wars films just instantly seems to know how to do things, and I think that's possibly fair. I don't think it's. I mean, I hate the term anyway. A Mary Sue, it just really pisses me off because you get as many. It's quite misogynistic, isn't it? Really, because because if you look at Luke Skywalker, he's pretty similar. You can suddenly fly an X-wing because he bombed around in a T-16. My theory on this is that a lot of the ills that we have right now are tied into uh, nostalgia and toxic toxic nostalgia in the sense that nostalgia is marketed back to us 
as a panacea for all the ills that are happening right now. I'm not going to go into politics no. and certain phrases that have occurred over the it's last It's also possibly a reason years. why there was the negative reaction to this is because you had six years, a bit like with the Star Wars prequels as well, not to keep, but obviously, like you say, there are parallels. That you had six years of it carrying on in the comics to the point where once this film came out, they had to go back and when they republished the comics in book form, the Newton Hicks characters were changed to different names. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, I have seen that. Yeah. So that it, it tied in, but it still made no sense. People had that, and they also had their own headcanon of, you know, they got back to Earth and they lived happily ever after, whatever kind of thing. And then this film came along and went, everything you built up in your head in the last six years, we're going to shit on straight away. Yeah, and that's and, that's echoed through to the extended universe of Star Wars now, isn't it? Post-Lucas and all these things. That's why everybody's it, so dissatisfied with endings. It's because nothing ever ends the way you wanted it to. No, so there's always an element of dissatisfaction, partly because it either doesn't end the way, you, or because you don't want it to end. Yeah, and actually, to be perfectly honest with you, I think you've hit the nail on the head as why this film got so much hate then and gets so much hate now. Yeah, and I think it's totally unnecessary. Um, you can take it or leave it. Um, I suppose I've made my thoughts very clear on what I think of the Last Jedi, yeah. and I I am on the side that of it's a terrible film. Uh, however, in terms of this one. I this is my equivalent of the Last Jedi, <laughs> so and I'll go into my reasons for later. But talking to Hicks, you mentioned. I, I, I think interesting with the Last Jedi as a standalone film, if it wasn't the middle part of a trilogy, I yeah. think it's actually a really interesting film. And like this one, it's the end part of a trilogy, for you know want of a better term. At the time, it was the end part of a trilogy, so it doesn't necessarily work as part of the whole. But as an individual thing, it's a really interesting movie that tries to do something different and take some big swings. I think part of the problem with this film is it had bigger ideas than it was able to do, both financially and yeah. execute on screen kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's... And I think part of the reappraisal of this film comes from David Fincher's career afterwards, where everybody's yeah. like, no, he is actually a genius director. Yeah, and... Um... And then looking at Alien 3 in that light, yeah, uh, and also, you know, the benefit of hindsight does put cast things into different lights and so forth. Um, and I've got plenty to say on that um, in the kind of trivia section of what people have said about Fincher, both at the time and after, yeah. in support of him. But it was kind of drowned out by the negativity of it. Because um, Michael Bean's whole thing was that had he known David Fincher was going to be the director he became, he'd have said, yeah, you can use my likeness as much as you like. Just cast me in one of your future films. Yeah. No kidding, with benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Talking of um, Michael Bean and Hicks, and we mentioned about the graphics before, I had to ruffle whilst lolling all over the place. Um, for the for you youngsters who don't know what that means, I barely know what it means, but I think it means roll on the floor laughing. So, yeah. um, uh, so my my students are going to have a laugh at how I'm trying to be hip and cool, and I'm just pulling out the forty two year old dad, dad lingo, like I know what <laughs> I know what it is. Um, so Hicks's graphic looks like the original Emperor from the pre-special edition Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> so if anyone hasn't seen it, go look at it. It's it's so funny. That's such the weird thing that they paid so much for that likeness, and it is such a shitty kind of computer terrible. graphic. It looks it looks you know like the the original Star Wars one, which actually I quite like actually, yeah. partly because that nostalgic, but but it's half of like a, a chimp's face composited yeah. with a woman's face, isn't it? And I'm like. <laughs> How did the emperor get on this? 
spaceship because it just looks exactly the same and it's in that kind of greeny hue as well um and of course he got stacks for that that likeness to be used as you said um but it's equally a graphic shot of his his corpse and it looked almost like he was grasping at his chest but that would make sense if what i've read since and what you said about the beam impaling him yeah. when when the it, the craft hits the water it's supposed to collapse the ship isn't it and yeah um yeah i feel i feel slightly more disappointed at his death um as i mentioned before um than i do about newts partly because of the whole soldier element and the fact that um not that i've had anything about against young girls uh, i just need to make that absolutely clear <laughs> it, any death is a tragedy okay uh even fictional ones um nobody should die in any film ever but uh the I, I just don't know it um i guess it's because i really like michael bean as an actor yeah, and especially same. at that time and i'm like oh man couldn't he have just had like one fight in him but so, so lovey still better than his death in the rock <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah that's uh, this is the second bean death we've talked about isn't it I, um, yeah i i get the wanting to have ripley on her own again and, you know, they're not being a male protector for her. I just think there's possibly different ways they could have gone around it. Yeah, I'm but, sure. You know, yeah. this is what we got, so... Yeah, right. And as we said, with the benefit of hindsight and, and so forth, maybe they would have made... And knowing how capable Fincher was and is, and he yeah. was amazingly capable then, but they just reined him in, didn't they? Because it's a bit like well, the I think whole... it's that, and I think he said that the crew were so against him, a bit like James Cameron suffered with with the UK crew on Aliens. I think the crew were so against him because he was 28 when he made this. Yeah, and of course you got the old school of the... And they were all older. I'm like, no, we've been here longer, we know what we're doing. And didn't the original um, director of photography, he had to leave fairly early on because of Parkinson's. Yeah, Parkinson's, yeah. But that implies like he was old and established. And of course, I've worked in British film and everything. And it's as lovely as those guys are. They are definitely like their clique. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, I remember being in my mid-20s and, and just trying to ingratiate myself and basically just sitting in the corner just going, all right, guys. <laughs> I imagine it was a lot like the scene where Ripley walks into the canteen. And all the prisoners stop and look at her. Yes, that awkward thing. I imagine that was a little bit what it was like for David Fincher. Yeah, yeah. and for me when I was working, they had, you, yeah. I had to shave my head. <laughs> uh, there were no nits or anything, or head lice or anything, but they just made me do it. They were yeah. like, you're going to go, you're going to go, Ellen Ripley, Ross. Well. All right, if you say so. But I must say that um, Bishop most definitely looks like an android in this this scene where he's all smashed to pieces. Um. And I mentioned before about that theory that maybe he he'd taken the the egg on board in the previous film, kind of like off screen. Um, I know it's kind of retrofitting some kind of explanation to this, but I, I like it. Yeah, I good. it's one it's a more one of the more plausible ones that would tie into the wider um, the wider universe of these these um, synthetics um, yeah. just being tools for their human masters. Um, I, I, I mean, we'll, we'll do some notes on a uh, retrofitting stuff in the post-watch because I've, I've got a couple of sort of retcons or at least one major retcon that something did in the future. I wondered if... Um, I know I know now, because I did some trivia reading, uh, which, we'll, as you say, we'll refer to later, but I wondered why, because I love it, the kind of post-industrial hellhole hellscape that it is, and I now know why that is. 
which I'll mention later. So keep listening for about another three hours. Um, but do you think, you know, the two suns, I know binary stars are very common in the galaxy and so forth, but do you think that might be another kind of Star Wars reference, possibly? Possibly. I think it's also just a shorthand for sci-fi sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this is an alien planet. Sky. I do love that shot of the crest of the planet and the light disappearing behind it. Absolutely. It comes early on in the film. Absolutely uh, gorgeous. I'd, and I've written, you, it's almost like we have film studies students together, isn't it? I've written <laughs> the same note here, and there is that happens in reverse later, doesn't it, at the very yeah. end of the film as well. So um, the golden glow surrounds it in that ring of fire. It's almost like Sauron's <laughs> eye wreathed in flame but uh yeah on to page four now of my my <laughs> epic book here of notes so um rumor control ha! straight away it does seem it just i'm i can't remember whether it's different in the um assembly edit as it is to the theatrical release but i remember thinking especially after that beautiful shot it seems a little like soap opera of the way to introduce the story and it's really heavy on exposition but you know what the hell i suppose yeah it is an easy info dump isn't it um, I do like that whole prison setting. I mean, again, we'll talk about alternate versions a bit later on. I do like that whole prison setting. I do like that it runs on an honor system that they know there's no way to escape. So why bother kicking off and killing the warden and eighty five? And of course, um, the the what what upsets the peace is um, the alien to them is uh, is Ripley. Is Ripley, yeah. Um, because um, she's as alien to, to them and their life as they've come to know it as a killing dragon, as, yeah. as Colic refers to it. Um, I've said that, we, we kind of alluded to it before, that we, we get to meet a number of the inmates in that rumour control scene, but at least in this cut, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not convinced that we really get to know very many of them at all. And no, as you they, said, they definitely get more in the assembly cut. I think this... The theatrical cut focuses mainly on Charles Dance until it doesn't. Obviously, yeah. Brian Clough, uh, Brian Glove, Brian Clough, <laughs> Brian Glover until it doesn't. I can't remember him in any either of them. <laughs> Did you have like a special edition Blu-ray that I didn't? Or something? Imagine him in the dugout telling them how to uh, <laughs> pace that toxic waste around. Yeah, um, and then like say get on just the people you recognise, so Pete Postle's way. Like, say that's, you grew up on British TV. There's a lot of people you recognise. That's the thing. I wonder if it's because you go, oh, I recognise that character that you kind of know him. Um, if you go on IMDb, the lower yeah. you down you get. So, like, Pete Bothelswaite's character is called David Bothelswaite. I did notice that. Clive Mantle's character is called Clive William. Yeah, I did notice it's that. Like they couldn't even be bothered by that point. We certainly do get, um, but whether we know them or not, just as a group, we certainly do get a sense of that anti-female attitude. Yeah. Um, which and and also the religious subtext subtext of the colony like straight away, which I think Again, I, they build a little bit more on in the assembly cut, don't they? Yeah, um, but it, it, there is the um, there is the funeral scene later, of course, and it, both of those themes are very they are subtext, but not that that hidden uh, in any sense, and they are quite pivotal to the way that the guys are ready to go ahead and possibly sacrifice themselves or do what needs to be done. It, um, yeah, their religion seems to be a weird mix of Christianity and Scientology. Yeah. And the way it's briefly described as to, you know, the weird religion they've discovered kind of thing, which I'm guessing yeah. is a carryover from it being monks originally on a wooden planet. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, jumping ahead a little bit, but no, but you you definitely. And I, I've said later that in my notes about how there's the, the strands of the DNA still follow through, like a great grandfather to the grandfather to the father to the son. You can see a family resemblance, as even in the final product. Um, and of course, talking of subtext, I have requested a rescue team, and we all know what that means. And it's it's like straight away, and of course, the whole duration of the film is essentially the journey of the rescue team rescue team in inverted commas, commas to fury um and that's the, the the duration that the film has to take place in so it's actually i think it's quite a good narrative device to have the ticking clock not just of the yeah. alien doing what it's doing but you've got a secondary um antagonist in the sense of Wayland dutani and making it over ripley knows she's got to kill the beast but she's also got to solve the problem of what's going to happen when the rescue team arrives um yeah, because that's and it. Because both alien and aliens have a tick and tock clock element at the end, but it's both leads to a big destruction. Whereas this feels like a smaller scale ticking clock, but when you think about it, it's actually a much bigger. Because if the company get the alien, that's it. Yes, right. Humanity and that's what is fucked. So whereas... I said is it's although it's it's a single death with Ripley's character. It's a double death because, of course, it's the last, at least as far as we know, it's the last remaining viable alien tissue sample or, or creature that they can have and it, it's a little bit like the t2 thing i know there's comparisons with t2 with the thumb in the the molten liquid and everything well, yeah, but, uh, i think originally she was meant to get lowered down into the lead but then they found out that t2 was going to end in a similar way and they had to change it so they but, changed it but she falls in in both edits although i prefer this one actually that she does just kind of like disappear into the into the flames yeah. and that's it and it does seem like uh, I've seen some criticisms where they've gone, oh, it just seems so un underwhelming. But I'm like, that's actually quite poetic in the sense that it's just it's so life is so transient. And so many of the characters we've come to know have just passed and, and disappeared. And she has literally saved humanity for as far as we know by this this choice here to just throw herself into the flames. Um, it's the reverse of Eve in the sense of temptation was to be to save herself to kind of believe in the lie yeah. knowing it's a lie and i know we're jumping right forward here but it's really is you know naturally come up in conversation it's yeah. so important is that she has and, and another reason why she is different in the pantheon of of movies to a character like ray because she took the decision that didn't require any super skills or any magical powers or anything it was a purely selfless human decision to go, I've got to do this. Um, That's yeah, it. Well, and I do like that moment before she shuts the the fence gate on Bishop 2. Yeah. Where the, you do see that little bit where she's like, can I trust him? And sort of hesitates and doubts it. And then is like, yeah, no, that's not good enough for me. Well, of course, narratively, um, we have been aligned as spectators to Ripley's character for the duration of three films, and not, not just this one. So yeah. we've, we've fully, we're fully. Um, there's like three levels to um, spectatorship. There's a recognition where you go, "Oh, yeah, that's like a family, and that's a family member. That's a dad. That's a dog. That's a mum, or whatever." Um, there's alignment where we start to becoming convinced that um, you know what they're doing is probably the right thing. And then the final stage is allegiance, where we just are full in buy into the characters and, and they can do no wrong. 
And maybe that's one of the differences between Luke Skywalker and Ray's character is that for a lot of audiences, we didn't get to Allegiance, but we did get to Allegiance pretty quickly with someone like Luke. And more more recently, not that I've seen it, but I understand that there's a very warm reception to Hayden Christensen's uh, performance in Ahsoka for um, for Anakin and Darth Vader that people just didn't have before. Yeah. Um, have you seen it? I know we're going off on a tangent. Yeah, here. no, I, I have seen Ahsoka. Um, it's as a series, it's fine, but it does have some nice moments, especially if you've invested in the Clone Wars and all that stuff as well. So I'd heard one of the comments I'd heard today was that um, just reading on the net that he's channeled the Clone Wars version of Anakin much more so than the the bratty kind of petulant character. Is that about right? Yes. Right. And so maybe not to put words into your mouth, but maybe you feel a movement from an alignment of understanding, you know, you know, he was a child with PTSD and he was thrown into this abusive um, monastery, essentially, where yeah. he was, you know, um, to allegiance where you can start to see him develop his own characteristics independently of what he's told to do. So he's got agency. Yeah. Um, and it's the same. What I'm saying here is that with Ripley, she has agency. And we're aligned to her. And I, I remember my experience of watching that Bishop scene. I know we jumped right to the end here, but it's, it's such it's kind a kind of way this goes. But... Yeah. Um, the, I remember listening to Bishop and going, not only is he human or is he a robot, but could I trust him? And of course, as a kid, I, was, I didn't realise what was happening to me as a spectator, which was my full allegiance to Ripley. And actually, there's another side note, there's a footnote to this. I think that's really powerful for a young male teen boy who has grown up loving things like Terminator and Predator and aliens and all that to have such a powerful in every respect female character who we are. We don't just have alignment to, but allegiance to at least I did. Yeah, no, that's it. And it's, such a refreshing thing because we did grow up in that age of your Schwarzeneggers, your Stallones, yeah. your Bruce Willis's later on, that kind of thing. And nothing against any of those and what they did then. And those films are great for what they are. But to get Ripley, who, let's face it, in Alien, she's a fairly one dimensional character. Yeah. Just because of the nature of that film, she grows a lot in Aliens and she gets a lot. I argue she possibly gives her best performance in this film yeah in many ways um which isn't saying that she was weak in the other film she wasn't i just think as much as i said she gets over the death of newton hicks quickly i also think that she just hardens up yeah and i don't think i think she takes it to the grave with her to be yeah. honest with you. you know the um of course it's a bit later but where she does the autopsy and she's 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 racked with tragedy um and we're talking about the the era in which we grew up. I mean, the whole point of Hot Shots, especially part two, part two, yeah. um, was the whole like that hyper masculine, ubermensch image of um, the Rambo character or the, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger character with the rippling body and everything. And of course, um, Sheen um, just bulks up and everything. Yeah. And half the joke is just his bulk. Yeah. Um, Another great, great performance is um, Charles Dance, of yeah. course. Um, excellent in this. 
um, really was, in my opinion, what the film needed as an antidote to uh, just the brutality of that that masculinity, probably misogynistic meathead. Um, Clemens is as tragic as any character in the Alien universe, is what I've written. Yeah, I I like how they build him up as well, and then how they kill him off. Yeah, because you think he's going to be the Hicks, the guy that's going to be there with her till the end, and obviously that then gives Charles S. Dutton, who is also fantastic. Yeah, and um, Brian Glover as well. I argue there's no weak performances in this film. There's underdeveloped characters. Yeah, but I'd argue that anybody with any decent amount of screen time is. I love the bit when they're doing the autopsy, and then it just cuts to Phil Davis, and he's just sat there yawning. Yeah, yeah. When it's going on in the background, I know it's a hot mess, but there are moments of genius in this. And like I was saying before. If this film was maybe filmed in a slightly different way these days, but um, released these days, I think it would get a lot more credit for the bravery of its um, ability to just get rid of characters um, like you should in an effective horror film. Yeah. They shouldn't be safe characters. I mean, our heroine is not safe. Why on earth should anyone else be safe? Um, And that's why I said it was, I think it's a bold move, but I think it's, is it the right move? Of course, that's up for debate. But um, to have killed off those two central characters as well from the previous one, but it's you've got to give them some credit. Yeah, no, like I say, I one hundred percent get the reason for doing it. I just and you know, it's more what I'd invested in that previous one because for me, Aliens is not only my favorite film in the series; it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, possibly my favorite Cameron movie as well. Um. And that film does such a good job of getting rid of the cannon fodder characters, let's be honest, that you barely get to know. But you still somehow invest in a lot of them as well. Like when Frost dies in Aliens, you're kind of, oh, fuck, really, Frost? And Apone. And you kind of, no. But then you really get to know Hicks, Hudson, Vasquez, even Gorman and Burke. They do have they do have personality, and to quote Pulp Fiction, personality goes a long way. Yeah. So, um, you uh, listen. I just want to say that I also do enjoy Aliens, um, and I loved it as a kid. I, it's not that I like it less now; it's just I see it differently now. Yeah, you're gonna hate the analogy I've got for it later when okay. I talk about the series that it, it kind of, this this film series and how where I place it, it as an analogy to another film series. You're gonna hate me for it. You'll never hear. You'll never invite me back again. <laughs> but anyway, now we're, we're on a good ground. So thanks for coming on. <laughs> so yeah, if you will put the time code in now to when you can hear Stuart punch me through the screen. But, uh, <laughs> uh, um, be like the Simpsons with the Ralph Wiggum thing. But if you pause it just right, you can see the exact moment his heart breaks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. If funny enough, it's I, I'm. It's only here that actually we properly get introduced to um, Sigourney Weaver's uh, Ripley, yeah. uh, because the rest of it is you know, she's coming around and so forth. It's the first proper bit of dialogue she's got with any character, and she's predictably um, excellent. Uh, and I just I liked the line, especially when you watch this film back and back and back, and you pick up these lines. And she goes, "I'll be sick for a few weeks. I'll be sick for a few weeks." Um, because of she's been jolted out of hypersleep. Yeah. But of course, it's not just that. It's the allusion to the things that we yeah. saw before with the egg. 
Um, and that's a lovely sense of that dramatic irony where the viewer knows something that the characters don't and is really ominous and tense. And again, it's just a, it's it's not, it is a horror cliche, but a cliche in a good way. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, because it's difficult, obviously, watching this film now. I can't remember whether I knew at the time that she had an egg inside, an alien inside her. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, not being able to remember that, I don't know how effective that was with the build up of her getting sicker and sicker, and then realizing that I think once you get the iconic thing with the alien comes up to her face and then buggers off, yeah, you know, something's up then, but. Yeah, I don't know how effective that was. It's a bit like watching a film where you know that, take, for example, The River Wild. You know Kevin Bacon's the bad guy, but he's not set up as the bad guy initially. You're meant to be unsure, but it's the kind of thing that the synopsis and the trailer both ruin those things. But you watched, when you first watched this film, how old were you? I would have been 14, going on 15. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, so with no disrespect to 14 or 15-year-old Stuart... And I'd have oh, been no, same... 13 going on 14, sorry. When I was roughly the same age watching it, when I was about 13 or so, um, it's those nuances that you watch with adult eyes, particularly yeah. trained eyes like you or I, that we, we look for detail now that we didn't then. That's um, it, yeah. That... I don't think Kid Me picked up on it at all. Probably didn't even pick up on the line, I'll feel sick for a couple of weeks. Exactly. Um, and bear in mind, it came off the back of Aliens, which was a lot more... Uh, palatable for children of our age even if it was a violent alien movie and everything it was still an action kick-ass movie well, that's it. i think that's why i found both alien and this one alien i found a good film but i found it quite boring to be honest i find this one particularly fucking tedious as a teenager because you would it's yeah, a very talking it's almost like a european film which is and probably you... why it did better over here than it did in america yeah and if you and that's the thing is that we I would, as I've said it towards the end, right? I really encourage anyone who's listening to this to just go back and give it a rewatch with adult eyes, because yeah. I guarantee you, you'll you'll get something more from it. Um, and and for one thing, I got something. I've seen this film, God knows how many times, right? I mean, I, t- I tend to watch the assembly edit, to be honest with you, but um, I just noticed when I was properly going through, you know, scene by scene just how many low angle shots there are in this film, which is really unusual. Um, normally you have some, and of course film school 101 is where you put the camera low looking up at characters, they look dominant and scary, and or, or and then we've got a camera that's high and it makes people look diminutive or weak. Um, but there's so much of this film, up until a given point where the camera becomes more level, which is basically where they're being chased. Yeah. Um, it really makes the the colony or the, the the facility feel really threatening. And if you go back and watch it again, you'll just go, oh, yeah, he's right. Like, there's so much of this shot, with this film, which is shot basically from ankle height. Yeah. It's subconsciously, it just really makes you feel like not just a fly on the wall, but a mouse underfoot of these, these, these horrible characters. Um, and then, of course, we've got to align with these horrible characters, which is really interesting psychological play narratively for the filmmaker to do with us. Well, that's it, because um, it's difficult to invest in them when you keep remembering that, you know, they're child molesters, rapists, murderers, that sort of thing. But you kind of find, like, Charles Esther and 
and some of the others that you sort of like Morse, that sort of thing, more likable than Danny, uh, not Danny Glover, Brian Glover's. Yeah. I'm going to get him right one day. He's so far mashed him up with two other people. Yeah. Um, I didn't correct you because I didn't want to yeah. draw attention to it. <laughs> Brian, uh, Brian Glover's character is... Brian Clough. <laughs> Danny Clough. <laughs> um, his character is the antagonist for Ripley, isn't he? He's not a likable character at all. And, you know, he's a shit to Clemens as well. I will say Clemens has got awful bedside manner when he tells her that she was the only survivor of the crash. Yeah, he's direct as all hell, isn't he? It's like they're... they're... <laughs> I've just come to where's my beloved basically daughter he doesn't know they might have been husband wife child they didn't make it right moving on (laughs) have some of my special potion (laughs) it's pretty it's pretty hard nosed I mean yeah I suppose he's had to develop I know I'm making excuses for him but he's had to develop some sort of like directness when he's dealing I imagine it would come from living your life in amongst hardened criminals yeah. They were quite frankly hateful people. Yeah, and yeah, um, but I read that. I mean, I think I'm sure I knew about this before. But um, uh, Charles S. Dutton, as a as a human being, he he was an ex convict as well, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. So even more so, like he brings a lot more to the role in that regard, and even more interesting that actually he is a great um, supporting character to our primary protagonist as well. Yeah, um, I think he is great. I think he delivers that speech at the funeral that's juxtaposed with the alien bursting out of the dog. And I think in lesser actors' hands, because that dialogue, that speech he gives is quite on the nose about with every death there's a rebirth kind of thing, yeah. a new life, and it's very on the nose for what you're seeing. I think in a lesser actor's hands, that would have been really that would have really stuck out as like, oh come on. Right, it's a bit much. But it's, but with it's him, not, it yeah. plays so nicely, and kind of you feel the poetry of it more, which is obviously what they were going for. But of course, he's a preacher as well, so yeah. we preach too. Um, but um, do you remember just how much of a big deal I made about when we did the game? How much I love that that feature trait that yeah. about sound design of what I called then it was like loud whispering. Um, well, I noticed when. Clements and Ripley's characters they first walk into that hall and she's like what's what's this place it's the it's basically the same kind of thing but instead of being loud whispering it's like muted shouting um it's just I know it's the exact opposite but it's actually the same kind of effect of sound where you've got a a weird leveling of the sound mix and it's just I'm like Fincher you you were there all along the sound in the air tunnel when he thinks he's seen Spike in the hole, but while he's cleaning it and you've got him singing and you've just got those ambient, the Foley work on, I mean, I'm a nerd for Foley work anyway and sound effects and all that sort of stuff. That sound is good. And it's, it sounds like it looks, if that makes any sense, because this film's got that great, dirty, moldy, grungy feel to it. Yeah. Like I say, it feels very European. And weird, it weirdly feels like a film, I can't remember his name, the guy who directed Alien Resurrection who did City of Lost Children, Amelie, and all those ones. Um, His name's just gone from my head. Sean something. Um, But it feels like one of his films. It has that 90s grunge look. And this was was 1992, which was when grunge broke. Yeah. Um, And it feels like it's of its time. Yeah, that's Uh, it. It's it's only missing some Alice in Chains on the soundtrack to (laughs) 
Jean-Pierre Genet. Yeah, Jeanette? that's it. Yeah. Forgive me, uh, all you French listeners. <laughs> You'll hate me later for what I'm about to do to Stuart anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I love you. Uh, <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> um, but yeah, the um, and then for the first time, we hear Goldenthal's theme properly, um, which is so good. I mean, properly, properly, we hear it at the very end in the conclusion, which is just beautiful. But um, and I will be salivating over that but um my note here literally is the score for this film is superb yeah it is because um, i know i've read that he wasn't happy with how it was blended with the sound effects on the film mm-hmm. um which i think it works quite nicely for me i don't know if possibly they've cleaned that up for the versions i've been watching yeah. So I watched this on Disney Plus last night because I couldn't be bothered to get up and put a disc in because I'm that lazy. Mm. Um, so I don't know how cleaned up it's been because I know it hasn't had a 4K remaster yet. Well, you know what? As a side note, I have written a note about this because I've pretty much written a note about everything in the 14 <laughs> pages of notes I've written. But um, I watched this on, as I said earlier, the the DVD that I bought when back in 2005 or six-ish, um, of the Alien Quadrilogy. So it's yeah. DVD. And I just, um, ordinarily, I go straight to the 4K Ultra HD one, right? But I just, there's something about watching this on the Blu-ray standard definition, yeah. which it just feels right to me. I don't know why. I wouldn't watch it on VHS, but... Um, and I'm sat in my study now, and I've got my 7.1 um, amp next to me, uh, but this is just a stereo mix. And my God, the sound mix is just phenomenal. Just on the stereo mix. Um, shortly after, there's a bit where there's like an intercom. And I honestly felt like I was in the room with them because yeah. I just got the speakers around me. And it's just a stereo mix. It is just incredible. So maybe on the um, theatrical release, actually, in the cinemas, it wasn't great. And maybe on the VHS, I'd imagine it was terrible. Yeah. Just on the DVD, it's good enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that nine-disc DVD set was superb. Yeah, I, I've said it before. I always slightly regret passing up getting the one that was the alien head that had the discs oh, yeah. Yeah. in the top of it. Because they'd reduced it to like 50 quid or something in HMV at one point in like the early 2000s before I worked for them. Yeah. And I walked away from it. And I've always regretted it. Just because I didn't have the space to put it on the shelf, really. And I knew Kat would be kind of like, that ain't living out. She hates yeah. my Terminator head, let alone... Yeah. Um yeah, you can have your own like predator um your your hunts, your successful hunts, but not for actually because you had that and you had the Planet of the Apes head as well, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, um I, I do like um Clemens' line about when Ripley asked how she knows his name, how he knows her name. And yeah. it's stencil on your shorts. Yeah. Yeah. Um and uh the or the other thing about the score that I I don't know how true this is, but I'd heard that that theme at the very end, the Adagio theme, um, Goldenthal basically wrote that in one evening. I think it was towards the end he had an original theme that he just tore up and threw away, and then I think he wrote that in one go. And it's an example of where actually genius genius can come out of um, just thin air. Yeah. Uh, a little bit different, maybe, to what we discussed before about that James Bond theme by um, what's his face for um, 
who also wrote it in an afternoon. Recently. Oh, Sam Smith. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they sort of brags on that Music of Bond documentary that he wrote in an afternoon. I'm, like, I'm not sure that's the brag you think. I know you won an Oscar, but I'm not sure that's the brag you think it is. Um, so Golden Thor, if he, if he actually did it, he actually pulled it out of the bag yeah. on this. Well, the um, other really impressive thing is this was his first major feature film. I don't know if he'd done smaller feature films before, but this was his first major feature film score, which is so you've really got a, impressive. A new director, pretty much a new um, composer, um, and you've got all this studio interference. It's, it's very similar to Gareth Edwards' experience, really, isn't it? With, yeah. Um, with Rogue One, although I guess Gareth Edwards had a different kind of um, way of looking at the Rogue One experience that fi- to what Fincher had on Alien 3. Um, I thought it was just an interesting juxtaposition of uh, Ripley's grief Um after she's been delivered that news to the cross-cutting to the dog with the implantation scars in the yeah. theatrical cut. Um, but again, it, it ties into that that abruptness of Clements just going, they're dead. Yeah. To, she goes, ah, and then you've got the cut to the dog, which obviously we uh, we feel sorry for. And then it's got the great effects on the dog. I'm like, how did they get the dog to stay still to put all that goop on its face? Yeah, because they had to shave part of the dog, didn't they, to make it look like the where the claw, the fingers, for want of a better term, of the face hugger was on its face. Yeah. So, and then, I mean, that dog's superb. The way they get it to pace backwards and forwards and sort of the noises it makes as it falls over, it's... Yeah, it's so real. It's so well performed for the the animal. Um, God bless his soul. Um, No, it's... It's up there with John Hurt's chestburster scene for, like, sticking with you. Yeah, I'd argue possibly more effective because it's a dog. Yeah, and also it looks a bit more real than the John Hurt one. Yeah, the glove puppet coming out of his chest. Uh, and I know that, like back in the day, it was incredibly shocking, but it looks a bit Exorcist levels of special effects these days. But yeah. that one stands up, you know. Um, and I mean, it, I mean, as a kid watching that, I wasn't terrified at all because a bit like the Exorcist stuff, I'd seen it parodied so many times. It was just yeah. like, oh right, this is this is just an unfunny version of a parody scene I've seen a thousand times before. That's it. It's the unfunny version of Spaceballs. Yeah, where it happens to him in that, and then he does yeah. a little dance number along the counter. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I had seen Spaceballs several years before I saw it. Yeah, Alien. I had as well. Um, but once again, the the shots are very economical. Um, on where when Newt is um she's she's on the slab, isn't she, of the, the morgue. Yeah, because I've read somewhere that there was a much more graphic autopsy because it flashes to like Arinids, for want of a better term. But it never lingers on him. But I read that there was a much more graphic version that even the crew felt physically sick, yeah, even though they knew I, it was I, all fake, they knew felt physically sick. And these are big, gruff, like, you know, English filmmaking crew. Again, I think because it's a child as well. Even if it's a dummy of a child, there's still that. You're looking at a fairly realistic to life child being cut open. Yeah, and it wasn't just like a small incision. Apparently it was, like, you know, of course, it's opening up the chest and everything. You see the rib cutter go in, don't you? Or you don't see it, but you hear it. That's the worst thing. You see it go down and then you hear it. And that's the first time she sort of flinches... She doesn't look away, and you can feel that she wants to look away hmm. as she's staring at Newt being cut open. Because you imagine 
Well, of course, just a, a child you've come to think of kind of as your own over the course of the previous film, and have and then saved, happened to watch it get cut open, and have saved this character, this child, yeah. only for her to be on a slab in front of you, not saved. And actually, if if what is true of that, the alien having been impregnated, impregnating her, um, the exact worst possible scenario of putting her in that cryo tube happened to her. Yeah. Which I suppose is like the also kind of alluded to in Covenant at the end, isn't it? So spoilers for that, by the way. Yeah, I'll I'll put a spoiler for the entire franchise. Yeah, that end of Covenant's horrible. Yeah. Um and of course we've got the scene halfway through Covenant where um James Franco's characters burnt alive as well in this cryo tube. Those cryo tubes, man. I'd yeah, I'd they, rather they, they stay don't seem fun. They don't seem fun. I'm just staying awake from, from my <laughs> journey. I'll just age seventy years, whatever. I'll, I'll be like uh, Chris Pratt in Passengers. I'll just happily live a life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, before the actual autopsy itself, she she approaches the body and she closes the the pale blue eyes. Yeah. Um, she says, "Forgive me," which of course is it's a horrible thing to do, but totally necessary. And then also horrible to do, and it's necessary. Is she demands an autopsy? Yeah. Um, knowing that she has to be there to see it because she's the only one who knows what she's looking for. Yeah. I, I do um, like that Clemens is willing to risk it all for a woman he's just met, but I guess that's the power of finally seeing a woman for the first time in God knows how many years. Yeah, and also just not a, a character who's like not... Yeah, and, and one who's also just um, like not a psychopath, yeah. presumably. Uh, although he, did, I guess he takes a punt on that. He doesn't know. <laughs> although although it possibly does sound kind of weird, but like, I need you to cut this dead child open. Yeah, like, quite cholera, and I need to watch it. That's it, and then um, just be like, "Yeah, fine, cool, whatever." But again, Finchin really knows how to use the close-ups and sounds you mentioned about maybe not what we see in and what we don't see is important as what we do see and the the crunching sounds and everything. Like I say, yeah, the sound of that rib cutter going in and the force you see Charles Dance use to cut it to, is possibly more graphic than actually seeing it happen and i also noticed that um there were little flourishes in golden Falls score between this scene and the next one that were so fincher um so for when the, the superintendent is talking to clements there's little tinkles on the piano which yeah. are just like just like we're in the game do you remember those little yeah. tinkles bits in the game and it's exactly like that and i just thought is it is it in, is it just coincidental or is it intentional? Like Fincher goes, like either he goes, "Can we have some of this?" Or the composer has listened and watched the other films and gone, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna contribute to his auteuristic style here and put in some little flourishes." I get the feeling with Fincher that there's nothing coincidental. No, he's given that great story on Fight Club where he made Brad Pitt or Ed Norton stunt double throw himself down the stairs like 99 times, and mm-hmm. then he used the first take. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course, then we cut to the the furnace being introduced. Strings, flames. It's really hellish, and I just it really brings it home about how great that set was. Yeah. I understand that the a large part of the budget was um, spent on set that wasn't even used because it, because they had they, they just like aesthetically they wouldn't have fit with big columns like Roman Greco columns or things like this that just just didn't work. It does feel. Although they got rid of a lot of... I think a lot of it was also wooden. Uh, yeah, I think it part. was, because it was the wooden planet. But even though they the, the aesthetics of it changed, it does feel spiritually tied 
uh, if not a descendant from that original wooden monks planet concept. Yeah. Um, through to with the production design of, obviously it's a, it's a, um, it's an evolution of what it was before, but it does feel like it it is a relative of it. Um, and it something else I've noted, having looked at its, I wouldn't say with fresh eyes, but with with eyes where I'm full on analysis mode. Um, it really, really reminds me of Twelve Monkeys too. Yeah. She's also great. And by the way, just planting the seed here. Maybe we could do that one in the future. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I do make a little mention of um, uh, Terry Gilliam and his style uh, with Brazil, Brazil, and so forth yeah. a bit later with with something towards the end of the film. Um, and I just thought, with as we go to the cremation scene, um, yes, it is on the nose, but. It's a really, and it's, I think, the only time in a film where he uses it, really nice superimposition of um, the layers of the religious undertones with the, you've got the bodies going in and you've got all of the parishioners, as it were, and then the three faces of, is it Dylan, Ripley and Clements? Yeah. They're kind of like in triptych next to each other. Um, as we have the birth of the dragon, which is emphasised, obviously, by Dylan's eulogy, um, which is, of course, prophetic of the finale because everything comes around cyclically. That's what I like about her going into the flames rather than the original plan of her going being lowered down into the lead. Yeah. Is that it feels like she's following Hicks and yeah. Newt. Yes. And it, stupid as it is, it feels like they're sort of together again kind of thing. Yeah, and um, yeah. so I I like that look of it. And like you say, I've I think Oliver Harper in his retrospective videos sort of cited that there's no impact when she hits the fire. But I agree with you that I like that she just disappears into it, and I think Newton Hicks kind of do that as well. Yeah, yeah, um, and it is just about letting go because there's that weird thing. The fall seems really far, but then when you look at it from another angle, it's not actually that far up. I mean, it's far enough up that you wouldn't. Yeah burn the faces off the people but and I, I you know it's the storytelling technique of the fall kind of thing yeah it um, is especially with yeah the closing scene it does seem when you look at it is that movie thing of making it uh expanded far more it would only take a second or two for there's something to drop into it it's like a seven second fuse on a bomb isn't it that's like a minute and a half yeah. screen time <laughs> <laughs> and it keeps resetting yeah it's like it's like, um, shit, he's not there yet. Uh, Fine, you get five more seconds, you cheeky scamp. But I've got to say, like, I know you don't like it for the whole dog thing, um, and there is the alternative version of it, but I thought the birth of the new life scene looks really amazing. Yeah. Oh, I um, think it's much more impactful with the dog. Like I say, just as a personal preference, if you can avoid killing a dog, I'm down for it. But they call it for the purposes of the film, I think it's much more effective than it just flopping out of a dead ox. Yeah, and they, they call it the Bambi Burster, don't they? Yeah. Um, and I know that it doesn't quite track with what we've seen before with a much smaller kind of embryonic creature, um, but I don't think it's ever looked better. For Yeah, because this was meant to be the idea, wasn't it, that the alien sort of takes on a look and characteristic of the creature it comes from. Yeah. Was always the idea, which I think, I can't remember if they got rid of that in the 
later films or not. Um, so, but yeah, size wise, it is possibly too big to be in that dog. But that alien does also seem to shift in size throughout the film. It's one of yeah, the inconsistencies of it, even within from one shot to the next within yeah. the same scene. Um, with the most iconic one that we'll talk about, of course, um, there's a as it approaches and then as it appears in the next shot in front of her, it's, it literally is about fifty percent bigger in the shot before. Um, but I love the the, the shaking of it, um, you know, the puppetry work on it to shake. It's like shaking off like yeah. a dog would, and then it scuttles off, which we don't actually see it scuttling off in this version of the film the camera pulls back from the dead corpse and we just hear it behind us. Yeah. And like I said, just even on my stereo mix, it was just amazing. It felt like it was behind me. It was really, really yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's all disgusting. It's coming in dog. Um, but it's really effective. So I'm actually on page six of my notes now. Not even <laughs> I mean, the film sort of kicks into a gear anyway, so. You've got yep. Murphy dying in the tunnel, which is really well done. I do like when they're investigating it, and Andrews is like, you know, silly bugger, must have just got too close to the fan. And yeah, and they go, but Clemens is blowing. like, but it was blowing. <laughs> yeah, it was blowing. So, um, and the first kill is re- really nicely shot and edited. Um, really sets up that premise that um, even though the alien is just a juvenile, it, 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 it these prisoners are in trouble. You know, there's, there's. I know that we know that the alien kills very quickly after being born, but it's like instantaneous now, really. Um, it did feel a bit odd to me. I can't remember whether it's different in the other version, but that Ripley and Clemens sleep together just so soon. Yeah, it's because you get that scene where she asks him why he's there. And he avoids that question. Then he asks her the question about what he was. She was really looking for in Newt, and she avoids the question by being like, "You find me attractive." And then, in what way? In that way, yeah. Um, it does. And then, yeah, they do sleep together. Part of me wonders whether that's Ripley being kind of like, "I've just been through so much shit. I just need to feel something different," kind of thing. And he seems like a nice enough guy. Yeah, Um... given the standard that I've got to pick from. And if we think about like her her experience in real time, um, from the end of the first film to this to this point, it's not actually that long, is it? Well, no. So the, she, the closest to intimacy she's had in that time as well, yeah, is Hicks showing her how to use the gun. Yeah, and of course, like the only time that she, she was in cryosleep the whole time, and then she was at is it cent, center point station or something? There's yeah. The, Whatever it is, and then she so she's there for a couple of weeks, I suppose, and then she gets on the transport out to on the Sulaco, and then blah blah blah, aliens happens. Then she's back in crow sleep, and it's only a week or so later that she's yeah. in this situation. I think, yeah, I think so it's she, two weeks. So. so it's probably in terms of her being conscious, probably about three months or four months yeah. since the end of the first film. I liken it a little bit to you know the bit in Casino Royale where Daniel Craig has nearly died, yeah. and then he's just eating the food in the restaurant after yeah. the card game. Yeah, so, I kind of liken it a little bit to that. I imagine, because I had the same note, kind of like, you know, everybody you cared about or have grown to care about has just died again. But I also get that it is probably just wanting to feel something else and feel good. And it's not just her, um, because it, it does provide some plot purpose, but it really, it also develops the character and the relationship between them. 
And it really, again, establishes Clemens about being a really tragic character, which yeah. I think, you know, th there's Shakespeare wrote tragedies and comedies and his greatest tragic characters were the ones who were fully, fully tragic. And, yeah. and Clemens is a great Shakespearean actor. Um, well, actor, but also character. Um, yeah. To be honest with you, because I know in Kim Newman's review, he cited one of those as like the bit that's so sort of faux dramatic that it's unintentionally funny. I was like, I never got that feeling from. No him. man, I thought, I no, it's really in. It's got a lot of integrity to it. Yeah. I don't. I think he's just being obtuse there. So stuff you, Kim. <laughs> you're you're being. What did he call him? Overly dramatic. Yeah, Kim, it was like you're being overly dramatic. <laughs> if you're listening to this however long we've been it's, recording i mean i suppose i kind of see it but for me it just didn't stand out that way you know i think he was implying it was like soap opery and it, i never got that from it but yeah i suppose if that's the way you feel i think he's wrong but so, um, something with regards to both of them and their growing relationship and interaction with, with each other, something I'd noticed you probably did as well was that when Clemens comes back from the accident, he uh, is she's frame right and he comes in from the left, uh, right up to her face, just like the alien does later. Yeah. It's the same size of frame actually, and he comes in. I mean, of course, the the interaction is way different, but it's exactly the same framing of the two um, faces in there. Um, and I've, I've mentioned before about how I've watched it on DVD and how I thought that this was just kind of like its natural kind of resolution to watch it in. Yeah. I don't know. I've never what, what Did you watch it in which resolution? Because you streamed it, right? So was it 4K? No, it was. I don't think it was 4K. I think it was Blu-ray quality because I don't think they've done a 4K transfer of this yet. All right. I think they've done Alien and... I think James Cameron's working on the Aliens one because James Cameron approves all new transfers of his films, which is why we've never had a True Lies for uh, Blu-ray. And that because he has to oversee him, it's like in his contract, and he oh, just right. hasn't had the time to do them because he's been off making 80 Avatar movies. Um, I also like... You don't see the sex scene between Ripley and Clemens, but it then shortly after is when a gang of the prisoners attempt to rape her. Yeah, and I have written here, that's exactly the point of what I've got to... Holt McNally dropping his goggles on. It's brutal. Is, is, is it weirdly... I don't know, it, it's not funny, but it's an odd moment that almost breaks the tension a little bit. It, it's Gilliam style. It's yeah. like something out of Brazil. It's 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 not funny, but it's... Dis, it's, um, it's the fr incongruous. Yeah. In with with it's it's like it's odd, but it's not odd in a nice way. It's odd in yeah. a like, and it's really brutal, but it's necessary. This this scene. Yeah. So number one, it gives Dylan chance to establish himself to the viewer, um, because of course, as we say, once Clemens goes, Dylan has to step in yeah. kind of that that kind of protector role for her. Um, it's interestingly shot and edited um, with um, what I noticed here was the rock guitar soundtrack, um, which this is the scene where I went, that's where he's bringing in his, his music video editing stuff. Um, and that piece of meat on the end of the crowbar will, will haunt me to the day I die. Yeah. Um, it's not... the way he kicks her legs apart. Yeah. That's really horrible as well. I mean, I've got, 
one of my triggers with things is like sexual assault kind of things in films. It's always been, I mean, as it should be, but it's always been sort of a turn off for me in film and sort of would I be willing to watch this film knowing that it's probably got this element of sexual assault, sexual abuse in it kind of thing. Certainly not. Pleasant. And this isn't graphic at all. You know, you don't see, it's not like um, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. No, but she actually gets saved before it, the the occurrence happens, but we yeah. take it right up to the point where it... it yeah, he like cuts a belt and that's when Dylan appears, isn't it? And what what is weird is that after this we get it, to me it got at least in this edit a little confusing because we we're wondering how we should feel about these inmates now. They're obviously at least that group are really horrible. Um, but then we've got the candle scene is directly next. Yeah. Um, so and those guys with the candles are victims. And they also seem to be like all right. So we're like and because we've got this weirdness where we can't quite identify who's who, partly because we don't get introduced to them very well, and secondly because they all look the same, yeah. um, you're like, hang on a second, am I feeling as a group of people, are they good, are they bad, are they, should I avoid it, The way it's done is you've got a guy, you've got no idea who he is, who's the second to die, you've got the African-American guy, although I think he was British, and you've got Paul McGann, so that seems to be your thing, is you've got a white guy you don't, you've never really seen in anything before, you've got Paul McGann that you've kind of seen in things before, and you've got a guy of a different coloured skin, so yeah, that's the only thing you've got to tell him apart. And and then this next bit with the candle scene is, of course, where Paul McGann's character gets at least in this edit one of his two scenes, or whatever, where the where his face gets splattered with the blood, and he meets in his words the dragon. Although I don't think in this edit he ever refers to it as the dragon. He does it? refer to it as the dragon in the hospital room. Originally, it was meant to be that he saw it coming out of fire. Yeah which is why he thought it was a dragon kind of thing. I do love that whole thing. It's a, such a great haunted house horror movie setup kind of thing. Yeah. that They light their way with candles and you're just seeing them go out one at a time. Yeah. It's such an effectively done thing. Yeah. Because uh, I do like that with these films, the future is pretty shit. Yeah. I love later on jumping ahead when the company comes in, that guy's got that big video camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and they, interestingly, they were reading about the production designer for this film. He was saying about how he liked on the first film how the people on the spaceship um, were wearing like dirty trainers. Yeah, it's like the you red know. dwarf effect, isn't it? Yeah, right. It, it actually establishes it, and in in, in in the diegesis feels a lot more real than. Um, because they're working people, they're yeah. they're blue collar workers. Why wouldn't they have dirty trainers and cigarette ash all down their front and whatever else? Yeah, because they're essentially haulers in the first, you know, truckers in space for want of a better term. Space in the first truckers. Film. Yeah, that's what it. That's what it should have called. What did they call it? That what did they call it? Alien. Rubbish title. In, in the space second one, there, the uh, colony is pretty much like a mining colony. Yeah, and this and one then, is obviously in this the one. You've, you've got the grotty prison that's been abandoned and run down and only gets supplies every six months. I do like that they point, I think it's 85 says that they discovered the religion about five years ago. Yeah. So you kind of get the feeling that it, it's new to them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah. Like they've got, they got into it, but they're not quite sure how they got into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he even says that, doesn't he pretty much? That is like, they all discovered this religion. Nobody really knows how it just, 
Yeah. I like that Dylan's clearly properly into it, and then you've got the others that are weak to them. Because when it was supposed to be monks, I think that element was still there, but I don't think it went to that extreme. Mm-hmm. Which I think it sounds wrong to say, but this film possibly needed that. You needed that threat that Ripley potentially isn't safe anywhere. She's not safe because yeah. there's an alien. She's not safe because she's surrounded by predators. Well, of course, funny enough, like later, she begs Dylan to kill her. Yes, and I've got he's... a note for that because that's one of my favourite shots in the film. The way it lingers with her in the foreground, him in the background, trying to decide if he can actually do it. I love that look of doubt on his face. Of like, she yeah, prost- I could kill you. She prostrates herself like Jesus, again, the kind of sacrificial lamb. And I'd, it's like the exact opposite of what you're saying, though, is that if he had been a threat to her before, then his, I don't know, maybe it would have worked, um, but um, him refusing to do it. Because he doesn't refuse to do it for her. Um, he says that he needs her to get the alien and then he'll kill her. Yeah. When it's dead, you die. Yeah. Is, is the um, deal they but, have. I mean, there is sort of that element of... Because he says he's killed loads of women. Yeah. You know, that was his crime. There is that element of he's got a willing victim. Does that take the desire to kill out of it for him as well? Yeah. There's so much going on in his face. Yeah. Before he swings. Is he got an axe or a pipe? I can't remember what it is. It's an axe in the scene where um where he where she begs him to kill him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, because he swings it high and misses yeah but there's so much going on in his face at that time that you could read into it it's like you know is this too easy for him is he looking for a reason not to do it is he looking for a reason to do it it's just course, his face process and everything there's very little going on on his face but it's the subtlety of performance and that's, that's what it. I'm it's not like right. he's going mm, 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 mm. if if anyone who's watched this when they were much younger and they are willing, after listening to what we say, to go back and watch it with adult eyes. I think anyone watching it seriously will get so much more from it for exactly those reasons. Um, the spectators doing a lot more work in this film than they had to in the last one. The last one has its charms, but essentially it's a gun ho kind of, you know... Oh, it's spectator. an 80s action movie. For um, you term. don't need to think too much about it you can just let it wash over you and enjoy it, right? And there's no shame in that, that's fine. There's some thinking involved, but not a great deal. Whereas this film... Yeah, I, I think it's it's more intelligent than it possibly sounds like you're giving it credit for, and I'm not saying that you're not giving it the credit, but you know the way that sounds, I think Aliens is a more intelligent film than that. Purely because it's Cameron, to, to a certain degree. But yeah, I get, what you're, I get what you mean. The big appeal of Aliens is that it's a load of Marines gunning down a load of aliens. Yeah. But the, the lot of criticism is from this film is derived from the fact that um, people were expecting a lot. You said it yourself. It's more like a European art house film. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, why don't you watch it as such then? Just try and uh, engage with it on a more cerebral level. Like you were saying, just read into the nuances. And again, maybe it's because I'm super biased with this film. And I'll put my cards on the table at the end about how I feel of it in, in regards to the whole franchise. But um there's so much more to it than is just on the surface. Um, and you can't compare it to the one before because it's nothing like it. And if that's what you're going in looking for, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, much um, like you can't go into Aliens expecting another alien because it's a very different film. That's what I liked about this film. It's a bit like the Mission Impossible films to a certain degree. 
with a different director and a different flair for each film. So you've got the first Mission Impossible, which we've discussed before, which is very much a almost a Cold War thriller, yeah, kind of thing with lots of subdiffusion that sort of thing. Then you've got the John Woo one, which is pure for full on action. Then you've got three, which is a TV pilot, <laughs> and then. You know, they kept building on that. With these, each one's got a different feel. That's what I mean that you can watch them as a whole or you can watch them as a standalone sequel. Ripley's the only connecting tissue, really. For the benefit of the listeners, right, Jason started talking about Mission Impossible and I got an expression on my face because he sniffed out what I was going to refer to later as my analogy for different series, right? (laughs) So guess which one I think Aliens is in regards to Mission Impossible. Is it the John Woo one? <laughs> it is, but again, that's that's why I said you'd hate me for it. Um, I actually quite enjoy Mission Impossible too for its for its. Uh... Oh, it's such a time capsule of two thousand. Yeah, and it's, as was it's a... the most two thousand film that ever two thousand. Precisely. So it's not meant to be derogatory. It's just that if we were to analogize, then that there you go. Um, and I in actually... many ways, Mission Impossible Two is this film as well because it was such a mess of stuff going on. Yeah, quite right. Um, but there's uh, another um, tr- um, series analogy. I would have thought of the first Alien being analogous to Terminator. Yeah. Aliens being, of course, analogous to T2. Um, and then actually Alien 3 being the terminator sequel that actually we never got yeah you know like something that could have not that it needed it i mean that's a whole different discussion but if there were to be three which there were um the we could have gone with a more art housey style um version and i guess the closest analogy would be salvation i was about to say salvation is possibly the closest one yeah whether you actually went you know what we're going to set it in a day we're going to do it with you know this so okay, okay, maybe Salvation is the closest thing to Alien Three, but um... it's certainly the first one that broke away from the formula of the Terminator films. And this, whilst it all feels very much like that Alien formula, it also feels very different to what came before. Yeah, and it feels like a conclusion. Yeah, it feels like it actually closed it up. I mean, well, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, sort of on Paul McGann. Paul McGann is so good in this film. When they're bringing him in and he's just repeatedly saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And I know that there are reasons for this um, and a lot of criticism about the discrepancy of his performance, but actually he is supposed to be a psychopath. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love the way when they're saying, when she's like, I believe you, and you're like, he's a mass murderer and you just see that grin on his face. And like He's proud. Yeah. That, you know, he's and killed if, multiple people. You know, like his accent changes throughout. He's supposed to be wacko. So, you know, like... Just allow it. Just yeah, because I think originally he saw himself as like a Charles Manson, so he was doing a voice to sort of fit that. And David Finch was like, "No, I don't like it." So that's why he suddenly becomes Liverpudlian. Yeah. Um, and again, he gets a lot more in the assembly cut. Yeah. Because you get that whole him, because the alien spares him twice, so he thinks that he has a bond with it because he frees it. Because in the assembly cut, they succeed in trapping it, don't they? Yeah. So we, in, we, in this one, it changes because the explosion the goes off early. The accident happens, yeah. Um, Which I love in that scene when 
he looks down because he's dropped the thing. You see the alien appear above him. Yeah. And then it's gone and then it just springs out him when he climbs back up. Yeah. But I just love the way the alien sort of appears over color. Oh, yeah. Dinner's yeah. coming. You're next. But I also like in this that this is the first one that you see the alien actually eating people. Yeah. Yeah, and brutally as well, like because it, it is dog-like. It's just pulling away on the flesh. And um, and talking about brutality, I really love the bishop scene. Yeah. Really love it. Um, it's so well done, the sound design, the animatronics, which I understand. Well, the way one eye pulsates. I understand the like time. Coming out from behind it. It's... It was the best animatronics effects that had ever been put on the yeah. film. Um, and it certainly looks. I mean, I know it's performance from a puppet, but it's performance from my, from the voice and the pu- pu- puppeteers. Um, I also just love. We talked about Clements being direct. Um, was there an alien on board? Yes. Was it with us all the way? Uh, sorry, it was with us all the way. There's just no messing about from him. He's just delivering the information like a like a like a yeah. computer would. Um, and it just feels really authentic. It does look like a mashed-up android. Yeah. Well, yes, it's Bishop of the Dump, isn't it? It's his dying breath. Even though he's an android, when she pulls the wires out and disconnects him, pretty much turns him off. Just that, oh. Yeah. Yeah, and the, it, the voice um, goes kind of like digitised as yeah. the, the final breath as well. It's just, again, the sound mix is just beautiful on this. Um, I think... Lance Henriksen had no intention of being in this film, but he did it as a favour to Walter Hill because they were friends. Yeah, I'd, I'd read that too. Because um, he's and... credited, obviously, as Bishop too. Yeah. So he isn't even credited for his voice work on this. And obviously, we know it's him. But And what's what's interesting is, of course, to kill basically kill her friend, um, she removes the, pa- the the needle which is powering him from his ear. And then shortly after, Clement says to her, do you still trust me with a needle? Yeah. Um, which is a great scene between Ripley and Clements, which, of course, leads then to... Well, just quickly, you've got that going on, and you've also got Paul McGann's character asking her if she's married. Yeah. And it's this weirdly touching moment where he's like, you should. And he's yeah. like telling her to live. Yeah. And it's, a, it's such a shame that Clemens just dis or oh, Golic, sorry, just disappears. In this film, yeah. In, In this, this film. Edit, this film. Yeah. It, it's such um, a shame. It, to be honest, it's something I didn't really pick up on. I just assumed he was amongst the crowd at the end who just got blown up in the tunnel at one point. It's the one bit, really, of the assembly edit, which I think is really sorely missing from the theatrical. Yeah. That see that sequence with him with the, where they trap it and then he releases it. Um, I can live with most of the the stuff in the theatrical cut remaining, but that bit really helps not only the plot but also and the pacing of it and everything. But the um, the character and his ability to do a performance, which is yeah. super as well, um, and it re- of course reinforces this thing that there is no bond between the alien and and humans, no matter how much the humans might want it to be, which further. Um, echoes the the futility of the company or Wayland Utani wanting to get it for their control because there's no way they will. It the Golic thing feels like a nice throw. Have you ever seen? I've talked about it recently, obviously with the thing. Have you ever seen the original thing from another world, the black and white fifties one? Yeah. The scientist in that who believes he can communicate with the aliens, who he's pretty much trying to fuck up the plans. Mm-hmm. 
because of that belief. It's got that nice old sci-fi throwback feel to it. Obviously done in a contemporary way, in a very different way. But, in, you know, instead of an intelligent person acting like a madman, it is a madman acting like a madman. Yeah. Um, I, I love when they're like, you know, he calls the one guy up for swearing. He's like, you can say shit, it's not against God. Yeah. And that sort of lays the groundwork for how fanatically religious Golic has become. Yeah. And then, of course, what really tipped Golic over is is the next, is this scene, which is the most iconic scene in the film, which I understand was shot in secret by Fincher because he was told not to do it. And then he basically yeah, stopped that over well. a lunch break and went off and did it. And he, to this day, says that it's not the way he'd want to have done it. And I'm like, to be honest with you, um, it's the most iconic shot in the film. <laughs> it's in the trailer. They used it on the poster. <laughs> maybe in the entire franchise by yeah. this point. I mean, I, I've actually made that note: most iconic shot from the franchise. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly up there with the first egg opening and the chest burster um, from Alien, and then the Queen appearing from the dropship and the the power loader get away from her bitch is, is as iconic from those two films. But I actually think if if you for even audiences who haven't seen this, you show them a few frames of that and they'll go, that's an alien movie. Or they, they I, I'd go- argue, you say Sigourney Weaver and an alien, that's going to be the image that comes in. I've I not tried it. Imagine if you Google it. Yeah. So Sigourney Weaver and alien, that would be one of the top pictures that comes up. It's just, it's just so well shot, composed, performed, and it totally encapsulates the terror of the, the entire series. And um, and also the terror that this character, this Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, is feeling throughout from the moment that this creature just appeared in her life, which, as we've mentioned, is only probably a matter of months ago. Um, yeah, and- which when you think about it, because she has that great line later when she's looking for it, you've been a part of my life for so long now, I can't remember a time before you. And for us, it's you know obviously been so long because it was years and years apart. But yeah, for her, seventy-nine it's... to ninety-two, isn't it? It's... So what's interesting from that is we, for the first time in this film, we're not. It's not that we're not aligned to Ripley, but we are Golic here. Yeah. So as we say, we we being in the audience, um, it's we we are looking upon. Uh, this creature from a third-party perspective, looking at the way it interacts with Ripley and how she interacts with that. Uh, And, of course, that tips him over the edge of what happens then. So, um, And then, of course, then we go back straight away to rumour control. So, um, yeah, Ripley's got this sequence where she's, after that, terror, she gets up on her feet and she runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. And it's actually quite, she didn't just appear straight away. She's running. And all that time, you know, that there's something, the alien's gone somewhere. Where's it gone? And then it appears and Andrews just get gets whipped up and all hell breaks loose, especially as now 85 is in charge. I do love, there's a couple of wonderful comic moments in that bit. He gets pulled up, the blood comes down, then the ball bounces, and then it just cuts to Morse going, holding a chair, just going, fuck. And it's a, and this, I love his delivery of that line, fuck. And then I love the shot of the guy mopping up, and he's sort of underneath yeah. where Andrew's got to, and he's just looking up. 
And do you remember I said that I noticed how low angled the shots were predominantly yeah. all of them up, up until a point. And it's really at this point in the film where they start flattening off. And I thought, what is the reason for this? And it must be because of all their, for all their double Y chromosome status, it doesn't matter how tough and mental and crazy and powerful they think they are. Now they are truly lost, scared little boys. Yeah. So the camera flattens off because it doesn't put them in a position of, of strength any longer. It puts them in a, a position of you're being hunted from yeah. this animal that can come from you from any angle, right? Um, yeah, because I like when Ripley's walking around with 85. She says about, you know, it'll be in this area because it's like a lion. It's like it yeah. always stays close to the zebras and 85 goes, zebras? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he, he's acted that really well because he does feel like a guy with 85 IQ points, doesn't he? So yeah. When he gets that limelight moment, because she has a decent relationship with 85 as well, he's the one who's there when she scans herself. Yeah. He's the one circling after her. And you get that thing of, is he going to be another Burke? Because his fear and wanting to get home to his wife and child. And he does. He aligns that. with the company. Yeah. I did make a note to say that really that scene where he scans her, he does, he might not be very intelligent intellectually, but he is actually quite emotionally intelligent. Yeah. And um, he's, it's quite an authentic human moment where he, he's obviously very sorry for her, but he can't quite process what it means. Yeah. Just the way he tells her she doesn't want to look at it. Yeah. She's like, I've got to. Yeah. Um, that, this is the bit where we mentioned before about how in the assembly edit it was better, where the plan kind of did actually work, even yeah. if they, it didn't work perfectly, it worked. Um, and I thought that even though it's not as well done in this version, um, the plan, it does feel kind of like right and authentic, like they've scrabbled together what they can do and they yeah. figured out, well, we if we do this and we've got we've got these materials, we can do that. I thought Ripley's interaction with the inmates, um, she's now been fully accepted by them, probably. Maybe they've gone, okay, well, we're stuffed. We better look to her. Um, I do I'm, like that meeting set where they're like sat in little circles or the set where that meeting happens, rather. And yeah. you've got more sat in that circle and you've got the guy in, sat in the circle above him kind of thing. I love the design of that set. Which so really it really feels like 12 Monkeys again, doesn't yeah. it? Where you've got the, the guys in the future who are in that kind of circular set. And I do like 85 um, saying you should be in charge. And I'm like, no, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> what's his name? Morse is set up in the circle. Yeah. It's pretty high up. And I'm like, how the hell did he get up there? And does he really want to be up there where the alien could just come Yeah, I know. You'd want to all congregate together, wouldn't you? You want to be. I don't know what's behind it, whether there's corridors or what, because there's a guy sat in a circle above him as well. Yeah. And it's just. But he's so good. And then they're like, you know. Dylan's practically in charge anyway. You should be in charge. Like, I don't want it. Yeah. And that's when they sort of turn to Ripley. Um, which I've got to say... echoes the Marines in the previous film. Yeah. Turn into Ripley, who is pretty much the power behind Hicks. Hicks is technically in charge, and she uses that when... Yeah. And he turns to her and says, like, what do we do? Okay, we do this. Because, um... again, you've got a thing where nobody believes Ripley until it happens, until the shit hits the fan. Yeah. And talking of uh, the proverbial hitting the fan, the bit where the accident occurs, where we're told about how... I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the chemical that they smear all over the place. Like I'm doing an 85 here. <laughs> where Morse corrects him and he goes, it's actually pronounced like this. 
where the um it's like a little fuse or something falls yeah and so and it's the perfect use of slow-mo it just falls beautifully and then it touches the liquid and of course the explosions happen and all all hell breaks loose yeah it's pete possible isn't it not morse Oh, yeah, sorry. because he's the one who says about him sneaking in and finding out his IQ. That's yes, that's right. Because he said about it, it, we saw a barrel of it fall into uh, and put a ship into dry dock for like three months or something. Yeah, um, quite right. Um, and there's the after the um, fire subsides, we've got the nice foreshadowing with the the sprinklers and the hot bucket. Yeah, where it kind of collapses and. Um, I think that's nice. I don't think that it's too on the nose. I think it's actually because more. No, because it wasn't until a few watches that I actually clocked it. It's one of those nice little details that you pick up on a repeat viewing. Because Morse does go, the sprinklers, the sprinklers. And of course, she's, she, presumably, she'll have seen that happen. So she'll have got it straight away. Yeah. Um, I like as well that after her scan, it's sent straight to the company. Yeah. Because um, you've got Bishop's line of the company knows everything when she's um, plugged into him. Yeah. When she asked if the company knew whether there was an alien on the ship or not. Um, and then you've got that, and then you've got the company sending the message to 85, and it just keeps coming with a waiting reply, a waiting reply, a waiting reply, a waiting reply. Yeah. So just before that of course there's the the actual scan bit and i thought it was nice timing at that point for you mentioned before that you weren't quite sure whether she was impregnated or not when you watched it when you were younger so it's a nice point at that point for her to start getting the hand cramps yeah because there must be a reason for that of course um and of course you by now because of all the other stuff that's been going on it's very easy to have forgotten the warning signs um so this was a great point right now after the second act and the false climax in the second act to have that nice scene between Aaron and Ripley. Um, and we talked about how it, well, I said it humanizes him quite well. You've got one inside of you. Um, and that, that composite effect of, and the making of documentary you said that was brilliant. It was great how they had the multi layers of the camera tracking around yeah. and compositing the different um, like holographic images over each other as negatives. Um, it's just brilliant and it's so cleverly done and it just looks so authentic for the technology of that series yeah um and as you mentioned before i really love the to 85 the um the secret priority message that comes through onto aaron's screen um and i just love it even more that we don't actually see him respond yeah so we're left wondering did he was he really a company guy was he um was he actually more clever than we thought he was or was he just a lost little boy like the others are um so because it happens around you what's your feelings on the alien pov fisheye kind of evil dead almost technique it's it's a good question i i was thinking about it yesterday when i first watched it i wasn't too convinced with it now i actually quite quite like it um because again, it's the first time in the series we see an alien POV. Yeah, I don't know whether it's supposed to be taken literally as to what the alien sees. I know it's in this fisheye type. I, I, I've always felt the fisheye was more an effect, so you know you're seeing it from a different yeah. thing's perspective rather than an actual literal version of how the alien is seeing it. 
I think it's I, I think it's I think it's good. I think it's scary. I think for the first time we see something different again. It's the film is trying to do some things within the universe that are a bit different. Um, I also like the bit where um, Ripley goes to find the alien. Yeah. And then we've got the scene where we see it and then she approaches and goes to knock it on the head. And it's um, it's like full of roaches, <laughs> full of roaches. Uh, and then, of course, it appears next to her. And then she just we know that it goes up to her, but we don't see the interaction. Yeah. It then cuts to her in the cell with Dylan, doesn't it? So um, it's. I yeah, the, the that POV, what do you think of the POV? Um. I thought it was kind of hokey initially as I watch more films. So like I say, it's got that evil dead feel, which I wonder if it is an homage to the evil dead. So I get the feeling that he was homage in different horror films as well. Like say with the candles blowing out is a nice old fashioned horror film trope. Um, so I quite like it as that. And I think it works for what they're trying to do. I only brought it up because I know a few people in their reviews cited it as something that they didn't like. When I, I get why people don't like it, but yeah. I think it's interesting. It's different. It's it's not always wholly successful. A bit like the blending of the puppet being matted into the scene that it's in. It's not wholly successful. But I get what they were going for, and I like that they went for it. And I like that it's a practical effect, especially if the reviews are written contemporaneous to to the time. Yeah, then I can understand that because that was my initial impression. Even as a younger teenager, I was like, "This looks a bit silly. This looks really B movie." But now I actually appreciate it more. And I think you're right about the potential for homage there, because um, I'm I'm sure when the alien, when she goes to meet it, and then we've got the reveal that it's just a, a tube, and then she turns around, or a pipe, and then she turns around and sees the alien. The alien is actually revealed behind her in um, focus pull, which is a callback to the alien in Alien when it comes down from the chains. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right there. I think that he's peppered his film with lots of homages to things within the genre, even within the series. We've also had Predator Vision, Alien Vision, by the, um, Terminator Vision, sorry, by this point. So it's not yeah. unheard of to see things from another creature's point of view. Admittedly, with those, you had something else on the screen. So I think that's why they went for the fisheye kind of view. Yeah. So you know that you're seeing it from the alien point of view. And I do love the way it was. Like I say, it's very Evil Dead. Yeah. The, the way um, it whizzes around from the ceiling. And I like how it turns as the alien oh, yeah. really comes off the ceiling and onto it's really, the floor. It's really great camera work. I mean, of course, it's it's all done with uh, steady cam work. So it's just like the next evolution on from what yeah. could have been achieved in, say, The Shining. Um, just uh, God knows what it was like for that cameraman running through those halls. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it feels scary, and that actually that chase sequence where some of them make it, but only just by the skin of their teeth, and others don't. It does feel like there's a lot of jeopardy at stake there, and of course, it's not just for the lives of the the, the individual inmates; it's for the getting this beast into this place, um, and for everyone who dies, they've got to kind of rejig the plan on the fly. I like the chaos as well, that nobody's where they should be. So you've got, is it Pete Postlethwaite running? Yeah. No, I think it's Phil Davies running and nobody's there to shut the doors. Yeah. And I also like with Pete Postlethwaite where he's looking through the glass and then the alien comes down behind him. Yeah, and it's a brutal death, of course, where they go, the, the, the 
extendable yeah. inner jaw goes through his head through the glass as well that he was looking through. Previously. I do like in that scene as well, you've got Morse Bollock in the other inmate for running with scissors, pointing sharp. Yeah, oh, yeah. There is, it's good that there's some comic relief in there. It is, because um, of course, then they start, like, he goes, ooh, like that, and yeah. jumps out at him. And then, of course, the alien jumps out too. Um, I thought, I'd, I've got a note here that says, it's from some quotes. When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next they the next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable too. What makes you think they're gonna care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the arse end of space? And I said, that's why I think this film is so great. Uh, it's done its own thing, it's taken the sum of the gal the, the scum of the galaxy, and it's positioned them as the protagonists, which was a really bold move back then, and I still think it is. I think it still stands up today. Um and then there's the the, the the Dylan scene. I know we kind of like skipped over it a little bit, but where it is true, it's very important between Ripley and Dylan. Um, and then later he takes the leadership role with the group again. And he says, you're all going to die. You can finish this quote if you want. You're all going to die. The only question is how you want to check out. Do you want to do it on your feet or do you want to do it on your effing knees? Begging. I ain't much for begging. I'm like, mama, that's the, such great dialogue right yeah. there. Um, and so well delivered. Um, anyone who says that isn't iconic from the series is being needlessly obtuse. They're just yeah. doing it because they don't like Alien 3. Um, because you cannot feel... I was, I've was i seen that scene so many times, and I was like, yeah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ain't much for begging neither. It um, is. He's such a great character, and he gets a really good death scene as well. Even though you don't actually see it, you see him sort of fighting with it, but you don't actually see him die. You hear him die, and that's when Ripley then says, "Pour the lead." Yeah. So she waits for him to die before, you know, pretty much smothering him in boiling lead. Well, he's the epitome of this grey hero, isn't he? In the sense that um, he's he's we know he's. He's got some anti-hero qualities to him in the sense that he is there for a reason. Yeah, uh, he knows he's not a good man. But he does some great things. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because when they're climbing out and he realises the alien's following, because it's following him, it's not following Ripley, because it's got yeah. no interest in Ripley, it wants Ripley alive. Yeah. So he climbs back down. Just that moment of realisation, working it out and realising that this is his moment. And so you've got the last two remaining, what we could best describe as protagonists, um, both then sacrifice themselves in quick succession. Yeah. And it's his redemption. So he's, thank God, maybe he finds his way into heaven as a result, who knows, in his mind. And then, of course, as you mentioned before with Ripley, she returns back to maybe peace with, with um, Hicks and Newt. Um I I wish yeah. Uh he's there are some characters within this film who I just couldn't care less about, and there are some that I'm I really just love watching over and over and over and over. Yeah, uh, I I like the characters. I don't necessarily feel I feel their deaths, but not as much because there's still the thing in my mind of like they were rapists, murderer, child molesters. You never know whose crime is whose. Yeah, 
So you never know whether you're rooting for a child molester to outrun an alien or yeah. not that there's any difference in the crimes. They're all horrible crimes, but if you see what I mean. So you yeah. never know just how bad, because he says some of them are robbers. It's like, that seems extreme. <laughs> but I suppose it would have been a different grade of prisoner in there. And then a small group decided to stay. So you never know who's who. Um, Dylan's pretty much the only one who owns up to his crimes. And like I say, Golic smiles when they say that he's a murderer of multiple people. You know, also, well, well, the um, scene of the chase and everything's happening. We've got this shot to the Wayland yutani ship approaching um, as the, and the satellite dish tracks it. It's I love that shot where the satellite dish moves and you can see it moving in in the background. And we've spent so much time claustrophobically within this this penal colony that actually you forget that there's this ship approaching and there's yeah. there's um or at least that there's an outside world. So it's really nicely timed. Um, it's nicely timed because it's because you haven't got a ticking clock visually like you would have on a bomb or something. This gives you that sort of for argument's sake the clock counters on two minutes. They know they've got two minutes to finish everything up. Yeah. And it looks great. Um, just really miss those model effect shots today. Oh, I do. It's that's aged better. Cause it's shortly after this that we get pretty much the only obvious use of CGI, which is when the lead alien gets the water on it and he cracks and his head explodes. Yeah. And I think it's just the cracking and it's obvious CGI. Yeah. But it's not aged as badly. It's not great CGI by today's standards, but uh, you know it stands out as I know that CGI. Yeah, it's only about a second and a half actually. Yeah, it's weird because a year later you had Jurassic Park, which blended all that stuff. Yeah, pretty seamlessly. All right, again, some of it's not aged as well now, but at the time, that was as realistic as it got, kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's almost like this film came out a year too early. Yeah. It could have done with that post. Well, that's the Jurassic point. Park influence. That was the point that they they set the release date before they even had um, the the replacement director set. Well, yeah, I think they pretty much set the release date before they had a script because that's why the, where the whole you know on Earth everyone will hear you scream thing came yeah. from. Yeah, so the marketing team had to roll back on that. To the point, wow. for the longest time, I thought this film was set on Earth because one of the only pictures I'd seen was the alien behind the curtain. Yeah. It's just like an alien coming out of a shower curtain kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, like, oh, they've gone proper slasher. I also thought that something that made, uh, that heightened that ticking clock uh, impression was that then the pistons pulled, isn't it? Accident- well, I say accidentally, it's in, in frantic um, terror. The pistons pulled, which starts the whole process of the yeah. molten leg going. Um, and it raises the stakes perfectly at a time because straight in, straight after we actually see the arrival of the Wayland Utani team, um, and they look great. Um, and again, they look like something from a Terry Gilliam, Terry Gilliam film, like Twelve Monkeys or Brazil. I thought um, the exact same thing. Those extreme suits that the guys with guns, the soldiers with guns, are wearing. Yeah, and I'd never seen anything like it in any of the other films. And yeah. I don't know if you'd ever talking of video games. We talked about that before. There was um, the Alien trilogy video game that yeah. was on PlayStation and um, Sega Saturn at the time. And, yeah, I think Andy uh, had it. <laughs> it was mega hard, so I never really got off the first level, but I got some. I got it on uh, 
a system the other, uh, a couple of years ago and I put some cheats in and you can actually skip all the levels. And they've got those characters in the, the end levels that were like the Alien 3 levels and it's just really oh, cool. cool to see them again. <laughs> um, but I'd never really seen anything like that from another Alien film. But having watched... Um, it really feels like something at home alongside Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. And of course, like Blade Runner 2049 retro fits a ship like the Sulaco into the sky in the shot. So it combines the two universes. Yeah. So I just thought that was a nice little nod. Um, you, we mentioned before about Dylan's time to shine. He's so cool in the scene. Uh, the glasses come off. And he goes toe to toe with the beast. And like you say, we don't we know he dies because you kind of hear him stop fighting. Um, and then the lead pours and Goldenthal's score soars. And then we've got the like it's the fake death, isn't it? Because it's yeah. not quite dead. And the, the the creature leaps out. It's, it's the slasher movie jump scare, isn't it? Yeah. Coming it's back perfect. for one last kill. Such a tense uh, pursuit sequence. Um I wondered if the exploding alien was an homage to Jaws. Yeah, I wondered that when I was watching it. I was like, this feels very Jawsy. Do you think? Do you reckon that we could uh, just AI in a scene where Ripley goes, "Smile, you son of a bitch," <laughs> just try and... or is it more of an homage to Jaws Four? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where the shark explodes for no good reason. Well, um, yeah. But I like that that's over and you sort of relax and then you remember that you've got the company. Yeah. Which is a whole new threat level. Yeah. Because the people coming to rescue her are also a threat. Ripley's got three threats going on. Yeah. And that's what I was saying about one of the things that this film, if you watch it on a more mature eye, you 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 can pick up on this. It's on the radar. Have you got lots on she's got lots on her plate. Because you as a viewer, you want to believe Bishop too. Yeah. That he's going to save her and he's going to destroy it. But you also know that you can't trust him. It's such a weird thing that they... I mean, it's the arrogance of... You know, they willingly wipe out their own species for a buck. It's not... The trusting nature is doubly doubly so because um, there's the question of whether he's human or a droid. Yeah. So what what do you think? Well, there was, I think they've always said he was human because I think, I know some people have cited that his ear is pretty much hanging off and he doesn't seem to be in any pain. But I think that's more his primary thing is Ripley. Yeah. He's so focused on pretty much the billions of dollars going into flame. Yeah. Um, And I know there's a version where there's a lot more blood pouring out of him that is red blood. And I don't know whether they remove that to make it more ambiguous. Because um, originally 85 wasn't supposed to die. Oh, right. I think he was supposed to get knocked out, but then they changed it to him getting gunned down. Oh, right. Which, I guess, um, so you feel the sympathy with that character. Of course, um, Golic survives, doesn't he? And, um, did Not you Golic, know- um, Moore survives. Sorry, yeah, Moore, yeah. sorry. Uh, Moore survives. Which, again, I don't wonder why they didn't just blow him away. Yeah. Did you did you know that in the extended universe like canon, um, he was like shipped off to some other facility and then he served his time and then he was released or whatever. And he's supposed to have written um some really crappy novel based on his experiences. Did you know about this? I've yeah, I've read up on it. I 
didn't know the finer details of it, but I knew he had a life beyond the film. Yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd seen a video on it on that Alien Theory um, uh, YouTube channel we were talking about before uh, the podcast, and um, it's it's written in a in a way that a kind of someone who's almost illiterate would write some, a story, but it's basically recanting his stories about uh, his time on Fury and meeting Ripley. And basically, it's like exposing Wayland Utani, and because it's so poorly written, nobody took it seriously, and it just kind of like faded into obscurity. <laughs> I thought it was just so, like, it's the truth, and it's just buried in in this because people go, "Oh no, he's a mass murderer and a psycho," and it's just it's written terribly, so I can't take it seriously. I suppose, sort of wrapping the film up as the film does, you get Ripley's death, which we sort of touched on. There's the version where the chest burster comes out and she grabs it and sort of holds it into herself like a mother cradling a baby. And there's the assembly cut version where she just falls in, yeah. which I know some people have speculated that they changed that so that it doesn't burst out so that it ties into alien resurrection. Okay. Because they cut the alien queen out of her in alien resurrection after they've cloned her. Yeah. I adore that. This is Ripley, Last Survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. It's such a great way to end that trilogy and still give Ripley the final line of the film. Here's my notes, right? Please trust me. No. So heroic. And again, why Ripley is one of the greatest female protagonists of all time. Her sacrifice is a perfect resolution to her character arc. The birthing um, and her taking it with her to oblivion is, to me, perfect. I don't know why they changed it for the other version. I thought it was great. As it were. I know she falls for about 10 hours, but it doesn't matter. Um, it seamlessly links to the shots of the jets powering down um, and the new dawn from space, which, as you've cited, is just beautiful looking. Um, and it all is... Um, bridged by Golden Fool's amazing Adagio, which I just, yeah. I just, I love. That's my, that's my favorite piece of music from the the whole series. To be honest, um, the facility's abandoned. Morse is led away as the only survivor, and I've mentioned about his book. Um, and then we hear Ripley's famous sign-off from the first film. Um, I think that that is my favorite ending to any of the Alien films. Yeah. I, I tear up at that, hearing yeah. that again. It's such a perfect, like I say, it's such a perfect, like I say, the only thing I wish is that they just change the order slightly so that that is the very final thing. And then you get the sun coming out yeah. from behind the planet and then it ends. It's, so res- it's really respectful. Yeah. You know, he showed, despite his hellish time making this film, it was still respectful enough to to feel like it was um looking back at what had come before and yeah. and, and treating it with dignity um it's the perfect it's a bit like when i talked about star trek undiscovered country on an episode of this ages ago is that that's the perfect end for those characters they then bring some of them back for generations really ruins the impact of that final moment in Undiscovered Country. And with this, Alien Resurrection really ruins the impact of that final moment. Partly because it's really stretching itself to bring Ripley back, to clone her with an alien insider yeah. from a tiny bit of, de- of her blood that they found on... Which <laughs> I do wonder how many other 
It's like they've got a load of clones of 85 somewhere because they yeah. know his blood was huge. <laughs> oh, no. We've cloned him again. <laughs> yeah. He's just going, what a zebras? <laughs> just got a load of rapists and murderers that they cloned <laughs> by accident. They just um, feed them to the aliens. Um, yeah, I mean, no one was more surprised than Sigourney Weaver that she was going to come back for a fourth time, was she? And uh, she agreed to it because she had three things that she wanted to do, didn't she? Which she got two in this, and then the third one in Alien Resurrection, which was she wanted no guns. Yeah. Which she got in this. She wanted to die, which she got in this. And she wanted to have a sex scene with the, or she wanted to have sex with the alien, have a sex scene with the alien. Yeah. Which she got in Resurrection. Which is horrible. It is horrible. That whole film just feels. Dirty, gritty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not nice. I mean, there's some cool stuff in it, but not like a couple of shots. I just hate watching it. My friend Lee, who I made the film with, always said that he deliberately didn't watch Alien first. He'd watch Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, then watch Alien just to cleanse his soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had a good point. <laughs> um, I have got a page of interesting trivia but it's a whole page and i'm looking at the recording length so far right a lot of to be honest with you a lot of the kind of things that i was going to mention we've kind of mentioned in the body of this podcast yeah. anyway if i could just mention this book where i got a lot of it from um just as an, a plug for the book because it's great it's the alien alien the archive the ultimate guide to the classic movies it's beautiful. Um, this book, this is so comprehensive and has got so much good stuff in it. Um, and just interesting stuff like the design of those Wayland yutani characters as they come in, how it was an homage back to like samurai style yeah. stuff and just like, just really interesting stuff. And also just about how Fincher was getting on with this and some lovely quotes about Fincher, for example. Um, just trying to find one here. Um, oh yeah Finch's pitch to Fox was it's not about tough guys in outer space it's about paedophiles in outer space and I was like <laughs> bloody hell that's bold and they gave it to him on the basis of that um, but um, they're very, I mean Sigourney Weaver said about how she thought Fincher did an amazing job which is a quote and an exec producer Ezra Swerdlow um, claimed Fincher is a world class visual effects expert and he actually approached the cinematics and the visual effects like a scientist from a scientific perspective. Well, I think uh, part of the problem they had with Fincher was that he was taking too long to shoot stuff because he was so meticulous yeah. in what he wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. Um, what I'll do is I'll not, I'll not read out my whole page of notes there, uh, but I will say if anyone's interested in, in what I would have said... Yeah. Uh, Go go check out this book because it's beautiful. And um, I just make, if I may, um, mention of the person who gave this to me. Um, it's my uh, dearly departed uh, good friend and colleague. His name was Jason Murphy. He's my co-colleague at, at teaching in my department. And sadly, he passed away this summer. Um, but he he gifted me this book for my birthday last year. So um, I was another reason why I was so pleased to revisit Alien 3 because he gave yeah. me the opportunity to look through this book. Um, should we do final thoughts then? Uh, yeah, so quickly before we do that, obviously there is an assembly cut of this in 2003 which I think is a lot of people, like you said, as 
yours as well, preferred watch. I think it's better, but it doesn't make the film any more... It doesn't make it suddenly an undiscovered masterpiece. There are flaws yeah. with both. A bit like when I did the Superman 2 episode, I keep throwing back to old episodes, but I think somewhere between the assembly cut and the theatrical cut, there's a good film. Yeah, I agree. I think you could keep a lot of the theatrical cut, put the colic, the uh, golic stuff back in, and maybe yeah. some of the extra character development. Let the film run to like two and a half, three hours. I think you've got a really good cut there that's a bit more... The assembly cut's still got some of the issues of like things that don't make sense. That's not going to be able to be fixed without going back and shooting more. Um, but I think there is an interesting version of the film within the two cuts. It just needs yeah, somebody I, to come through and edit them together. I totally, I'm totally on the same page with you there. I, I tend to find that with films with alternate cuts is that there's, for one, you get used to the cut you've watched the amount the most. Yeah. So a bit like with Superman 2, there's so much in that that I'm familiar with that's missing from the Donner cut that you're just kind of like, eh, so this doesn't quite work as well for me because I liked that. Yeah. Um, I think there is stuff that can do that. Obviously as well, sort of quickly, there were other versions of it. You had the William Gibson script, which they turned into a Dark Horse comic. Oh, I didn't which know that. was written... It's, it's not bad. It's interesting. I don't know if it would have made a better film. But it's basically because they weren't sure whether Sigourney Weaver would come back or not. Ripley's in a coma throughout. I think she has a brief moment and then she's knocked out and she's in a coma for the rest of the film. Newt gets sent off to live with her grandparents and it focuses on Hicks and Bishop and a team that's gone on board the Slocko. And they find an alien egg in with Bishop's guts, for want of a better term. Um, and you know that starts that whole thing and it's basically what we've seen before it's why knowing that script existed I was surprised that they went with the killing off Hicks and Newt because you've got an idea there that's a Hicks centred thing so knowing you're killing Ripley off if this film had made so much money they'd paint themselves into a corner where they'd have no cast to bring back yeah especially as they were were hanging all their their hopes on it yeah so to have Hicks still floating around in space because as far as Ripley could be concerned she could assume they were dead because yeah. nobody would know they were on board with her when she crash landed yeah. they'd be like you were alone I assume something happened to the ship yeah and of course, there's, there's so you no... didn't need them to die the only thing you'd have lost is the autopsy scene yeah but you could have had Ripley alone assuming she was the last survivor of the Sulaco as well and then you've got that in your back pocket in case you could get round the new thing. You could, you know, she was sent also, off. Also, there's something wrong that, with the stasis thing. They took her away. Just say that theory I said about before that Bishop was unknowingly doing things. He yeah. could have like false memories. So when she plugs him in and says what happened, he could say a false, false memory of, you know, he wouldn't even know. He yeah. was just running some code in his head that says this, tell them this happened and, and then erase the file so you don't know it happened. So there's any number of ways that you could have got around her being misdirected. Yeah. Um, and then those those other characters surviving. and Because um, then you've got the Vincent Ward version, which was the monks on the wooden planet, which yeah. sounds great. Um, I will say as well with that William Gibson thing, um, Dirk Mags did a radio version of it for Audible 
oh, okay. an audio movie version of it for Audible, which I've not actually, I've heard a part of it. I've not heard the whole thing. Um, I keep every so often getting a free trial for Audible and then downloading books then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's worth checking out as an interesting aside. And that's actually got Michael Bean, Lance Hendrickson in it. So it is like an alternate continuation, if you want to go that way. Yeah. Um, the Vincent Ward thing, which they go into a lot in the making of documentary on the Blu-ray, he's got that awesome bit where he's like, you do know your secretary is reporting back to Fox on you. Yeah. And that was kind of the final straw for him. I like the idea of the wooden planet. I don't know if it works. I like the idea of there was a monk pulled down through the toilet where the alien was work, running through the sewer system thing. I like that Ripley walked into the field of wheat on fire at the end rather than fall into a furnace. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that film dealt with the Newton Hicks thing of it all, but but there's an interesting thing there. Again, as with any unmade film, whether it would have been a better version of the film or a more satisfying version for people at the time. I think it would have gone down like a lead balloon. Yeah. I um, think but... I think it would have been... Vi- if, I've not. I must confess, I've not seen Vincent Ward's film. I can't remember what it was called. That was what got in the gig. So I can't say whether it would have been as visually interesting as this. I think it's a neat idea. Yeah, I mean, to make it now it would be super cool. Yeah, especially because like of all the other spin-offs and things that were like a, a wet dream for sci-fi nerds back in the late nine, uh, the 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 early the late 80s through the 90s about the alien predator stuff and everything and the way that actually came to fruition i reckon people would go well this is a breath of fresh air actually yeah but then i just think it would have been if they if alien 3 got such a panning for what it was can you imagine what it would have been like with wooden planet space just the idea of a wooden planet is such an interesting idea um one other bit of trivia, there was a game, I can't remember if it's the Colonial Marines game or not, but it retconned it so that it isn't Hicks in his stasis chamber. Oh, okay. Um, he basically gets pulled out of stasis to help fight some aliens, and then another Marine is knocked into his stasis chamber, that's put nice. into stasis, and then that's who gets ejected. It's such like you know a clutching at straws to retroactively sounds, bring hicks back to life it sounds slapdash and slapstick oh it is it's it's awful but it's kind of there for people who want to be like no hicks is alive Dwayne or dwight hicks is kicking around in space somewhere depending on which thing um i know that max allen collins who wrote the novelization tried to change it so that newt didn't die because he was so against that, but they made him do it, and he never wrote another Alien movie adaptation again because of it. He was so offended by it. it was a bit of trivia I read. Again, I don't know how hypocritical that is. I wonder. You've got to obviously have logic behind this, but I wonder if there'd be any any um, mileage in them saying that Wayland Utani had inter- intercepted the ship. It's the Sulaco, right? It's yeah. the pop from the Sulaco, right? And and had maybe introduced clones of the Hicks and the Newt character um, to psychologically play with um, Ripley and kind of set it on the directional course of Fury to see, you know, like if for whatever reason, maybe. So that's a way that, and, you know, because it's if it is in the same universe as Blade Runner, they could just put skin jobs or something in there, couldn't yeah. they? Um, so, I mean, that's for some Hollywood writers to figure out. But uh... yeah. Well, then you've got 
the other alternate Alien 3 that was nixed by, or allegedly nixed by Ridley Scott so he could carry on with his Prometheus Universe trilogy, which was Neil Blomkamp's one where they released that art that was erase yeah. Alien 3 and Resurrection. And then and that got that got a lot of traction, didn't it? It did get a lot of traction. Whether it would have been the film everybody thought it would be or not is a different thing, but it would have been very cool to see Sigourney Weaver and Michael Bean together again. If I was going to trust any new generation of filmmakers, I say new generation, he's not like that new, but um, it would either be someone like Blumkampf or or Gareth Edwards, particularly yeah. the film that's, you know, his AI film that's coming out. I don't think someone like Christopher Nolan would go very well with this franchise. No, and I've got to be honest, I don't think Ridley Scott worked going back to it. No. Because neither Prometheus nor Alien Covenant are great films. No. I mean, obviously you had the Alien versus Predator debacle yeah. in the middle. But I think Prometheus and Alien Covenant were just so... I mean, Alien Covenant suffers from that thing of smart people doing stupid things. Yeah. And Prometheus, to a certain degree as well, is idiots doing stupid things. And it's trying to have its cake and eat it as well, isn't it? So it's trying to like appease for the first half the the Prometheus lovers, uh, but not doing a good job of it because it just changes too much that doesn't make sense. And then it, then it, to the people who didn't like Prometheus quite so much, um, it goes, right, let's call, let's do callbacks to the, well, even films like Alien 3. Yeah. Um, it also with, suffers from that thing of why am I bothering to invest in any of these characters? Yeah. The only character that seems to be the consistent through is Michael Fassbender, and he's not a likable character. No, he is the best thing in it by a long shot. But oh, he not, is the best thing in it. Um, But yeah, I just... They were flawed. Plus, who cares about the space jockey's backstory? I don't yeah. need it. Who yeah. gives a shit? Yeah, it's a cool thing that I can play with in my own head canon. Yeah, I don't need it spelled out for me. I don't need the religious allegories and all the other stuff that came with it. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that sort of covers the alternate versions, what could have been, what came after, kind of thing. For me, Resurrection is the weakest of that original run of Alien films, Brief. the quadrilogy by by a long shot. Yeah. There's nothing memorable in that film beyond the Sigourney Weaver basketball thing because she did it in real life. Yeah. It's just, like I say, that's a dirty, horrible, grungy film. So sort of, let's do our final thoughts on Alien 3 and your six pages of notes on that. (laughs) No, no, your your listeners will be pleased to hear that this is my 14th and final page. Um, So please do jump in at any point if you've got anything to say. In my opinion... Humbly, the film has actually aged very well, especially in the backdrop of um, what happened to the series, uh, with what we just alluded to a minute ago. Great casting with excellent performances when we got to see them. Uh, Super setting, it's claustrophobic, it's pessimistic, it's isolated and it's grim. It took the series in a different direction using who would ordinarily be antagonists as protagonists and... I mentioned before about how that positions the spectator in a really interesting position where you're like, do I do I root for these guys? Do I not? Are they okay to be me? Or do I actually, or some of them okay? And I don't think they managed to replicate that in Resurrection by having a bunch of scum, scumbag guys. It just didn't work. It made some bold and brave decisions to kill some central characters from Aliens. I know, I know there's that's up for debate. 
that I said before, I think today that might be seen as an antidote to predictable plot armor writing, which just is is um, infused within all of Hollywood writing right now. It gave Ripley's character a fitting and satisfying end, tied into the last point of um, there's actually jeopardy at play here because any character can die. And in her case, her sacrifice may have saved humanity, for all we know. If that was the end of the series, then that could have been the thing that destroyed the alien from the from the universe, because all the others were nuked, weren't they? I thought Observer, the soundtrack, easily goes toe-to-toe with the previous two. And I know that they were iconic in their own right, and they are really good, but Adagio is probably my favourite theme from the entire series. It introduced us to what Fincher can do, and for that I'll be forever grateful, because you know I love him. Even if his wings were clipped by Fox a bit, much of what he still does to this day uh, is present in there. And it was the first steps of him being an auteur. I believe this is seriously underrated, even the theatrical cut, in fact. Uh, And it seems it's just the done thing to just hate on it. Like people who haven't even seen it just hate it. And maybe I'm getting a taste of my own medicine with my dislike for um, The Last Jedi. Because, like I said, I'm kind of in the other camp on this one. Um, and the last thing I'd just say to anyone who's listening is give it a chance with fresh eyes because it's actually a contender for the best in the series, believe it or not. Yeah. And I also think that this is actually the best designed alien creature in the entire series. I, I just think the runner is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Rodri, but I think this is the most... I mean, he says it's the least exciting, but the most interesting movie. And I think it is the most interesting movie in the series because it does try to do something different, more so than the first one, which is always described as a haunted house in space kind of thing. Or, you know, a monster in your house in space kind of thing. This one has more of that feel for me. I think I think this film, I think when I reviewed it on Letterboxd, I used this as well. I think this film is a wonderful mess. Yeah, I think that anything coherent came out of it is a miracle, and luck probably to be fair. Yeah. Uh, but I one hundred percent agree with you. I think it's one of those films that everybody's like, "That's one of one of the worst films ever made." Alien Three, Speed Two, kind of, and it doesn't belong in that list. No, no, it doesn't. Give it a chance, honestly. Watch it with adult eyes, especially if it's been twenty years or something since you last. Watch saw. it with adult eyes, and watch it with the eyes that you've seen more David Fincher films since then. And this is a on, real David Fincher film. It really is. And watch it on its own. Don't watch like Aliens before. Yeah, don't do a marathon. Don't do a Just marathon at all. Watch it on its own merits. And I'm sure that people will get more from it. You've got two. It's almost like a choose your own adventure kind of thing. You've got two perfectly good endings for Ripley. If you want yeah. to stop at Aliens and give her the happy ending. Yeah. You've got yeah. that. If you want the bleak, harsh reality of living this life with this thing and seeing a full character arc with actually purpose that's it and see because i think she has a nice arc in aliens and it does end in a good place for her both as a character and from a storytelling point of view yeah if you want to give her that ending to the point it's a bit like terminator 2 it never needed a sequel it was the perfect ending for that and aliens in many ways is the perfect happy ending for ripley it's ambiguous enough that you don't know what comes next, but you assume that there's a family unit there now. And this is why I mentioned that as an analogy for the Terminator series, this is kind of like the Terminator 3 that we never got. Yeah. I suppose, you know, the closest analogy would be Salvation, but 
it's this is but at least tied in. Yeah, it's something. it's it's a reach to make it, but it is the closest sort of thing in that it did try to do something different with the franchise. But yeah, no, I think there is a really rewarding watch here if you go into it as a standalone film with, like you say, adult eyes and with a view to what came after from David Fincher in particular. I mean, compared to the Alien films that came after, it's a goddamn masterpiece. I don't know what this new Alien film and what the Alien TV series are going to be like, but I don't need it. This is the perfect end for that. It's a really nice, neat trilogy. It ties itself up in a nice, neat bow. With that in mind, bearing in mind it is the first of his films and it's got a lot of him in it, uh, it might be quite interesting to watch this and then watch the new David Fincher film with Fassbender in it. And to see how much is from his first to his most recent has actually managed to follow through. It'd be an interesting exercise and I bet there'll be a lot more in it than most people would give it credit for. Yeah, definitely. Including Fincher, probably. Yeah. I do think it's a shame he doesn't talk about it. I get why he doesn't want to talk about it. But I think, I mean, we said it before, I think on the game episode, I think it is a pity that he won't go back to it and sort of address it and talk about it and talk about it with the brutal honesty yeah. of his experience on it and what he was trying to go for, what he thinks work, what doesn't work. I get it. I mean, we've all had experiences, uh, say, people we work with or work, companies we work for or whatever. Well, yeah, it'd be like the worst job you ever had and then them going, go back for a day, relive yeah. it. Yeah, and tell us tell us all about like how bad it was. And bear in mind, he still works in the industry. He probably yeah. just wants to let it go. But He's worked with Fox again. <laughs> I mean... This is this is what our job's for to talk about it, isn't it? Yeah. And we have talked about this film. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I don't need the filmmaker to talk to me about the film. I just think it would be interesting, given that we've heard pretty much every other voice connected to this film. Yeah. Because I know that he turned to I read that he turned to Brian Glover a lot. Apparently Brian Glover is like one of the nicest people you could ever meet. And he's okay. really level headed. Fincher would turn to him for advice when he was feeling stressed or yeah, whatever. Because I can't imagine this was an easy film. But I think it was a poison chalice of a film in many ways. Because you're following a beloved previous entry. You're trying to do something bold and different. And, you and you've on- got everybody from studio heads, producers, possibly Sigourney Weaver to a certain degree. Because she had a lot more power in this one. She's a co-producer on it. And let's not to fa- not to forget, this is your first big gig, the yeah. pressure you put on yourself. Exactly. And you've got a crew who doesn't believe in you. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be it. the standard for any film after Alien. So, like I say, I, I think that you said it's a bit of a hot mess and it's a miracle that it came out as well as it did. And I say the same. And I just think it's better than a lot of people give it credit for. Yeah. And in many respects, it's actually my favourite. So there we go. I think, like I say, Aliens is my favourite. Mainly, it's not so much the whole of Aliens. I love that whole bit where they're sealed in. Yeah. And I will always watch the Director's Cut Special Edition because I love the sentry gun scene. Yeah, where it's just down to a few, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing of tension and you're just watching a counter going down. Yeah. But that's a different film for another time. But yeah, no, I think this film is a wonderful, creepy, unsettling entry in the series more so than the two that came before and I 100% agree that it's rep- it does not deserve the reputation it's got 
Well, if after this um, three hours and so many minutes that we've talked, uh, we've convinced at least one person to go back and just rewatch it, which they could have done in the time this podcast was running for. Like I said, if you go uh, back to it and you still hate it, fair enough. I 100% understand. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I think there is, if you go back to it and say there's no merit to this film at all, you are not watching the film correctly. No, and you, you kind of just need to look at it through more objective eyes, I'd say. Yeah. Um, what might surprise your listeners to discover is although this has been a long podcast and very enjoyable, um, it's still an hour shorter than how long it took me to write my notes. <laughs> yeah, when you were like four and a half hours later, I was like, Jesus. Yeah. I was like, well, like, like do you watch the assembly cut as well? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally like every 15 seconds, I was pressing pause and writing something. But um, yeah. But, but no, it's also, I really enjoyed this. Like I say, I've been looking forward to this one pretty much since I started the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely of you to say. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's and so... like I say, it, it had to be you. We've had so many good conversations about it in the past. Yeah. Just sitting well, around you. on boring company corporate video shoots. <laughs> well, as ever, it's, it's really, I'm so grateful to have been invited back. You know, I love being a guest. And what's this, the fourth one or the fifth one we've done together or something? Yes, fourth or fifth. Yeah, we've taken you out of ninety six, well and truly, now. Yeah, so we did Mission Impossible. We did The Rock. Yeah, we did Independence the Day, the game. Yeah, Day. and this this is the fifth. This is our fifth and our second Fincher. Yeah, second Fincher, still in the nineties, though. Yeah, well, you know, it was a golden age it for was. us, anyway. <laughs> and that's where I'm happy to stay. So awesome. uh, we'll see what's next up on the list. If I'm allowed back, if you're, oh you're, yeah. Listening figures align to people wanting to hear me I rabbit I on. I don't care about listening figures. I do it because I enjoy chatting. So. I just, it's a lovely way to spend in the... If three people day. listen to it, that's a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> but awesome. Cheers for that, man. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, maybe do it again one day. Yes. Take care. And you. Bye. Alien 3. And why not? I'd like to thank Ross for joining me on the episode to talk about the film. At the time of recording, Alien 3 is available in the UK on DVD and Blu-ray as part of the Alien Collection from 20th Century Fox. We put a shout out on the socials for your thoughts on and memories of seeing the film, and we had a few replies from Steve Taylor Bryant, who on the Am Why Not Facebook group said, Really enjoyed it. I know it's not perfect, but really appreciated that they at least tried hard to do something different instead of a standard sequel thing. Still the one I rewatched the most. 
Andy Silman, also on the Amboy Not Facebook group, said, Hated it when I first saw it. Over the years, I've managed to fully appreciate it, and while it's not perfect, it's pretty close. They should have left it as a trilogy and ended Ripley's arc there, but no. And at DC Movies TV on Twitter said, I was obsessed with it when it came out and saw it a few times. There was some mixed reactions to it at the time. The Ripley fought for so much for it to end like that, but I thought it was fascinating to see Ripley end up alone her last days on this prison planet. Very nihilistic. Thank you for the comments for this episode. If you'd like to let us know your thoughts on the film, you can get involved in the conversation wherever you see this episode posted on our social media channels. You can give us a follow on Threads, Blue Sky, Instagram, or why not join the And Why Not group over on Facebook. Not only will we be kept up to date with what episodes are coming up and have a chance to contribute to them, but we also post our picks of three great movies to check out each week on Freeview TV. If you fancy joining us, just search And Why Not Pod on social media or check out the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you can be bothered to do so, please give the episode a share and tell your friends about it. And why not give the series a follow or subscribe over on Acast or wherever you listen to your episodes. If you're feeling super generous, we'd be grateful of a rating or a review if you have a second or two to spare. Or if you don't, we're just grateful that you spend the time listening to us. Thank you. If you've missed any And Why Not episodes so far, you can find them on our podcast channel over on Acast, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, or on our website at hauntednerds.com. In the meantime, Spooktober concludes next week when I'll be joined by Tom Stewart as we take our love of sequels too far to bring you the follow-up to last year's Halloween special with a chat about 1997's Scream 2. But until then, this has been a Nerds Who Haunted Themselves production, and I've been Stuart Moraine. Thanks for listening, and remember, in an insane world, a sane man must appear insane. Bye for now.